Hi, 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 and welcome to another episode of Paul or Nothing, the place to get all of your Paul all, all of, the time. of the time. And remember, this is widescreen podcasting. This is wide, wide, wide screen, screen, screen podcasting. I am, of course, your host, Sam Wiles, Sailor Sam from Birmingham, if you will. Thank you all for tuning in, and I hope you're all well, safe, and sound. Now, it was a struggle to do that intro, folks, because I like to be upbeat and bouncy at the top of the show, you know, nice and chirpy. But, of course, it's quite hard to be bright, really, on a day like this. Yes, you've all read the news by now, and I'm sure you've read the title for this episode. On the 5th of December, 2023, Denny Lane passed away. We lost Denny. And now he's gone. We're here, folks. Considering how long this podcast has been going on now, it's surprising that we haven't actually done an episode like this before. And I'm not really sure what the playbook is here, so I've been kind of making it up as I go along. We're all in still varying degrees of shock, I'm sure, but the moment I knew that Denny had passed, I knew I wanted to do something special for him as a tribute. I mean, it really is the least I could do. And so, at least for this week, we're going to push back the Run Devil Run series back a little bit for us to stop, take stock, and just take a moment to thank Denny for all he's given us over the years. Originally, this episode started out as like a quick biography of Denny, like the, the Cliff Notes, which was then going to end up with a top 10 Denny Lane moments from myself. However, not only are top 10s not as fun when done solo without a guest, but as soon as I started actually writing the episode last week, in classic Paul or nothing fashion, the research was all there, and so the episode started spiraling wildly out of control, and now I'm staring at 30 plus pages of pure Denny Lane. And to be honest, I could not be happier with this fact. Not just because I have a pathological desire to do episodes over three hours long and stress myself out, but because I was genuinely worried that I wasn't going to be able to do Denny justice. But thankfully, there are far more interviews and resources, both in print and online, about Mr. Lane than I ever imagined. And so the result of all of this, hopefully, will be, I'd like to think, that this episode you're about to hear now is the single most comprehensive look at the life of Birmingham-born musician Denny Lane. At least, that's ever been put to podcast. In the several years that I've been doing Paul and I think, I sadly never had any direct contact with Mr. Lane. And this could be a rather sore spot for me, I guess. Especially if, you know, a lot of you podcaster insiders know the behind-the-scenes stuff as to why Denny did kind of stop appearing on shows like this a few years ago. But still, without making this episode about me only a few minutes in, I really just would like to have conversed with him, because he does seem like a fantastic guy, and I know that we would have had a really good interview together. So, yeah, there's a little regret at the top there. Anyway, I might not be able to speak with Denny and ask him all the things I would have liked to have asked him, but I could still do the next thing and do a bloody good podcast in his honour instead. It's not like I've got any other practical skills. So yeah, in this first half of the show, before the break, we're going to focus on Denny's early life, his various solo careers, and his induction into Wings. And then with the second half, perhaps even second three-fifths, we're going to go through all the work he did during his time with Paul, followed by his post-Wings career. But before we do any of that, I'm going to do a little something for me. 
and indulge in what will always be my favourite performance from my fellow Brummie, covering Simon and Garfunkel's Richard Corey during the Wings Over America tour. Here's Denny Lane. Go on, Duck. Anyway, on to the main episode at hand now. We're going to be going through Denny Lane's life from start to finish, going at our own pace. There is no rush, but we have a lot to cover, folks. So I hope you've got some food, some drink, and a comfy chair, because there's a lot to learn here today. Also, I want to give a huge shout-out to BrumBeatMagazine.com or just BrumBeat.com, Nick Warburton at GarageHangover.com, Raul Hernandez at the Austin Chronicle, Lauren Daly at the Boston Globe, Andy Meek working at Billboard, and my good friend who we've had on the show, Owen Ling. 
for their work and their interviews with Denny Lane are all incredible. They're all eye-opening, and I'm going to be drawing from them extensively in this episode. I won't be shouting out each writer and quote as I come to it. So, if the proper accreditation is something you're really into, and sources and all that, then check out the show notes on the Patreon page. Shameless plug there, Sam. Let's begin. Born Brian Frederick Arthur Hines, the man we know professionally as Denny Lane, was born in Tysley, here in Birmingham, on the 29th of October, 1944. Tysley is a little area to the southwestish of Birmingham Centre, just between Spark Hill and Acox Green, all well known to Brummie locals, and about an hour away from where I live on the opposite end of town. Now, we're going to see this throughout Denny's life, especially his early life, but there are several stark similarities between his upbringing and the upbringing of four certain Scouser chaps that we frequently talk about on this podcast. And the setting's one of those big ones, with the only major difference being that Birmingham is in the middle of the country rather than the north of it. With Birmingham, you've still got the same cramped, urban, concrete, post-Second World War, sometimes Victorian, housing, post-war austerity, a large, diverse population to which to work the vast network of factories, railroads, and canals instead of docks. There were not any skyscrapers yet to speak of, but there still would have been many sites that are still there today that would have been known to Denny growing up. The markets, the famous bullring, the football stadium, New Street and Snow Hill stations, the town hall, the jewellery quarter, the gunmakers quarter, the leather makers and tanners, as well as the countless pubs and venues that the city used to be able to boast. Everything's in black and white, people are still wearing flat caps and smoking pipes indoors, lagers only served in bottles, and rock and roll had not quite yet burst onto the scene. However, that did not mean that Denny was not exposed to music from an early age, and like the other Beatles, his family too was full of musical people to teach and inspire him. Though, when asked about this, Denny provided a lot more detail than I was expecting, especially when it comes to the commonality between certain other musicians from that time, stating, After the war, everybody was into music in some sense. They were playing their own music. During the war, you know, you had to make up your own entertainment, right? Practically every family, just to cheer themselves up, would sing and play music. My sisters and my brother were all very much into music. A couple of them were dancers. My brother had a ukulele. That's how I started. I found a ukulele in the cupboard. He was in the Navy for 10 years, so I didn't really grow up around him. I grew up around my sister's influences, all the different styles of music they were into. And then my parents had an act that they used to sing together in the local club. I was put into theatre school called Jack Cooper School of Dancing, where my sisters had gone. From there, I got into playing guitar in between the two halves of a musical. For example, I would get up there with a piano player and do some of my own stuff at the intermission, and then it developed from there into me getting into a band while I was at school. So it was definitely a musical influence from my family that got me going. But it wasn't just that. I was into gypsy jazz. I was into classical music. I was into all sorts of music as a kid. I was very curious about ethnic music in different styles. I loved Django Reinhardt. I loved Ella Fitzgerald. And I was also influenced by all the crooners of the day, like Johnny Ray, Frankie Lane, Sinatra. That was my musical family. To play guitar, I listened to that music, not so much pop music. 
when Buddy Holly and Elvis came along, I did get into that more. Denny continues, We were so influenced by black artists. We all were. We owe everything we do to black artists. Rap, for example. Chuck Berry was doing rap. Muddy Waters was doing rap. And again, he continues, Wherever people in the British Commonwealth came from to work in the factories after the war, they brought their music with them. Like I said, there was reggae and all sorts of styles that we were influenced by, but especially by American music, thanks to American Forces Network in Germany. As well as Radio Luxembourg, we used to listen to all that American music. That's how we first latched onto it. So yeah, by the age of 12, Denny had already had his first solo live performance. His future was kind of set in stone from there, and he knew he wanted to make a career out of music. However, how did this musicality translate into a vibrant scene where Denny could make a living? Well, he didn't, not really anyway. Despite the fact that Birmingham was and is still the second city in the UK, it didn't change the fact that there was only really one place in this country for musicians at that time to make it big. Again, mirroring the fabs, Denny describes his own experiences at this time, stating, Birmingham was not the place you could get a record deal. There was no music scene in the city, really. It was just factories that had workers from all over the world. So a lot of musical influences came through Birmingham. Reggae, blues, Irish show bands. Most of the Birmingham bands were into pop, but you had to move to London to get a deal. Right, so if we're going to try and connect some of the dots here, it is worth pointing out the fact that Denny was already at this very early period incredibly well-versed in a variety of worldly styles. And it is this versatility that would allow him to keep up with, say, a virtuoso singer-songwriter whose interests and genres change with every single song on an album. But more on that later. Because now we are going to move on to Denny's first foray into the world of professional music making. And that was with a little outfit called Denny and the Diplomats, who are described as thus on the slickly titled Brumbeat magazine website. The Diplomats were one of the best-known Brumbeat groups to never have any record releases, although two of their lineup would go on to form some of the most successful and influential bands to come out of Birmingham in the 1960s. Now, oddly enough, Denny was not actually a founding member of this band, the band that would go on to use and then drop his name. No, he actually did first start off with an even more obscure band that doesn't even have like a Wikipedia article or anything called The Dominators, or in some publications, Denny and the Dominators. Essentially, the Diplomats had two founders and mainstays, Bev Bevan on drums and vocals, and Phil Arkin on guitar and vocals, and then they had a rotation of other singers and bassists. And whilst Bev Bevan was working at the Beehive department store on Albert Street in central Birmingham, he met a young man named Brian Hines, who hadn't yet changed his name. Bevan was clearly wowed by a young Brian Hines, stating, At that time, Denny was the most ambitious person I'd ever met. To hear him talk, just about anything was possible. Now, for anyone going mad thinking about where they know the name Bev Bevan from, I'll end your pain, he would go on to be the drummer for Electric Light Orchestra. Yes, that ELO with Jeff, Flaming Pie, Anthology, Got My Mind Set On You, Cloud Nine, Lynn. Anyway, it wouldn't be long before Bev Bevan would ask Brian to join the group. Brian then changed his name to Denny Lane and Bish Bash Bosh, they were called Denny Lane and the Diplomats. The lineup was completed by the addition of bassist and guitarist Dave Wheeland from Denny's old group, The Dominators. 
My favourite fact about the, the Diplomats, though, is that one of their first irregular lead singers, a man then called Bobby Davis, would go on to become the comedian Jasper Carrot, aka the man who is most commonly attributed with coining the Ringo's not even the best drummer in the Beatles punchline. When asked about why he decided to change his name, Denny explained it as thus, Brian Frederick Hines and the Diplomats wouldn't work. And so, going back to his sister as an influence, he chose the surname of singer Frankie Lane, though he still needed a new first name as well. So, when picking Denny, he explained it as, Everyone had a backyard with a den to hang out in. I think I got the nickname from there. And there we have it, ladies and germs, Denny Lane. Now, had Denny known that his future bandmate would have written a song called Penny Lane and that people in comment sections would forever write Denny Lane is in my ears and in my eyes, maybe he would have gone with Denny Hines or Brian Lane or something like that. Also, folks, just as a quick digression, I do apologise. Has anyone ever heard or met anyone in real life called Denny before getting into Wings? I mean, I've gone 31 years now without ever seeing anyone or anything called Denny, except for that poor restaurant chain in America, Denny's. Like, that's the closest I've ever got. And yet Wings has Denny Lane and Denny Sywell. Also, on top of that, it has a McCullough and a McCulloch as well. Lots of coincidence in Wings names. But anyway, back to the narrative. Denny and the Diplomats ended up as the opening act for a certain band called The Beatles at the Plaza Ballroom on the 5th of July 1963 at Old Hill. And everyone, this is 99.99999% likely the first time where Denny met Paul McCartney. It was also around this time that the EMI record company showed some interest in the group and signed them to a contract. However, even though they had recorded a number of songs under a couple of sessions under John Birch of Freddie and the Dreamers fame, nothing came of any of it. To this day, Denny Lane and the Diplomats have never been issued on record, and to say that this was an issue for Denny, no pun intended, was an understatement. He wanted to hit the big time, and he made the tough choice that he would not be long for the group. He later recalled, We got quite big in Birmingham, but the fact is, they didn't want to turn professional at that time. That's why I joined the Moody Blues. We were all ambitious, we all wanted to be famous, we wanted to make some money, we wanted to do something we enjoyed doing, and we were encouraged to do it. I don't know whether that's the case these days, though. The band, now Dennyless, would continue playing as The Diplomats, to varying degrees of success. You know, they still toured Birmingham for quite a while. But yeah, before we move on to another band that Denny's already mentioned, let's listen to one of the bootlegged slash unreleased tapes of Denny and The Diplomats. This is Forever and a Day.
Like any attractive person with dating options, Denny was smart and had a backup. By the time we get to the early 1964 period, when he wasn't with the diplomats, Denny Lane was moonlighting slash cheating on them and was rehearsing with another up-and-coming band called The Soul Preachers. Though by April of that year, he had left the diplomats for good to concentrate on this new venture. However, unlike his last band, Denny would instead focus on the blues. This second Brum-based band would officially be formed on May of 64 as the M&B Five, taking their name from the local M&B Brewing Company in hope of getting sponsorship. Now, shockingly, this genius business move did not, in fact, pay off. And instead, the group took the M and the B, decided that they should stand for something, and turned it into the household name that we know today, the Moody Blues. When speaking of this moment, Denny said, Mike apparently came up with the name, the Moody Blues, but I always thought I came up with the Moody part because I always saw it as a blues band. I think Mike got it from a Miles Davis album, Indigo Blue, or something like that. Anyway, it wouldn't be long before this band would go from just the next thing Denny was doing to playing with the big boys. With their eyes set on a hit single, they decided to cover an old Bessie Banks tune from way back in the day. And then things changed. Their producer, Alex Murray, described the occasion as thus. The band had played the song for the first time in London at a marquee gig, and that night they blew the crowd away, took them somewhere else. It was a unique song which matched their unique interpretation, so I knew before we went into the studio that it was going to be the big one. If only we could get it right and recapture the atmosphere they'd created at the marquee. If you haven't worked it out by now folks, the song that they played that fateful night was a track that we will hear our boy Denny do a hell of a lot during his tenure with Wings. This is Go Now. We've already said
Of course, Gonell would go on to be a massive success worldwide. And although Danny Lane wouldn't be long for the band, spoiler alert, and this song really doesn't match the style that they would later evolve into and be known for, you know, songs like Nights in White Satin, but it is still their only one true hit and arguably their signature song. It went straight to the top of the UK singles charts, number two in Canada, number four in Ireland, number eight in the Netherlands, number 10 in the US, number 12 in Australia, and number 15 in France. Yeah, safe to say it was a pretty big deal. Of course, as we've mentioned on this podcast before, a number 10 in the US is nothing to be sniffed at, as that is still an awful lot of vinyl. And it is worth pointing out that, yes, the Moody Blues' first major single did indeed do better than the Beatles did over in the States. Though it's not like they didn't earn that number 10 spot, as Denny recalls here. We were on the Chuck Berry tour at the time, as Go Now hit the bottom of the charts. It started creeping up with every different city on that tour. People would see us playing it live and go buy it. That tour definitely helped promote it. That's what you had to do in them days. Also, also, it should be worth pointing out that another of the opening bands on this tour was the Graham Bond Organization. One of the members of this band just so happened to be a man called Ginger Baker, a name that crops up a couple of times in this story. Though he is not the only famous name, as four bigger ones are now going to come into the picture. Yes, the Beatles. And rather shockingly, everyone, I mean, I didn't, I didn't know this, but the Moody Blues and the Beatles have way more fucking connections than I ever would have guessed. First of all, on the 11th of April 1965, the Moody Blues appeared alongside the Beatles on stage as they performed at the New Musical Express 1964-65 annual Poll Winners All-Star Concert. That was a mouthful at the Empire Pool in Wembley before an audience of 10,000 people. Of course, I imagine the Moody's would have been on first, so technically whilst not being their opening act, they are still kind of opening for them here, but you know, they're technically on the same bill. Then, on the 9th of June 65, Brian Epstein announced that he had signed the Moody Blues to a management company and agency contract with NEMS Enterprises. After this point, the Moody Blues would go on to be one of the many support acts for the Beatles' final full tour in the UK. Of course, this was at the height of Beatlemania, and so Denny was able to witness firsthand the absolute chaos that was unfolding at this time. He says, As Graham Edge from the Moody Blues will tell you, one of the reasons they didn't put their pictures on a lot of their album covers was because they didn't want to be that famous. It's too dangerous. Although a lot of the bands want to be successful, when fame comes along, they start wishing they weren't. It's all about that craziness that goes along with being famous. It distracts from the music, but at the same time, it presses you into coming up with something new. It's a double-edged sword, let's put it that way. It was a great experience though, for sure. Still, that didn't stop Denny in the future plastering his own face on his own album covers or over a variety of Wings album covers, single sleeves and other assorted promotional material. It was also around this time that the Moody's also got quite famous in the scene for throwing wild parties the guests of which would be the likes of the Rolling Stones, the Beatles, the Kinks, yada yada yada. And in the 2006 documentary, the classic artist series The Moody Blues, Mike Pinder, their former keyboard player, stated that the inspiration for She Came In Through The Bathroom Window was actually at one of these parties, stating, Ray Thomas was woken up one night, and what had happened was the trap window of the bathroom was open, just letting air in, I presume. There was this girl climbing up the drainpipe and came in through the bathroom window and went into Ray's room in the middle of the night. And I don't know what happened after that. But I do know that when I told John and Paul that story, the next thing we knew was she came in through the bathroom window. 
Of course, this directly contradicts Beetle Law, which is Paul recalling a, a time, uh, an ex-banished Apple Scruff broke in and stole some of his items. But yeah, it's interesting that the Moody's may have actually inspired that. There is a part of me, though, that just kind of thinks, uh, is that how it happened? Or were there just two instances where people came in through bathroom windows? Maybe that's a window people used to leave open quite a lot back in the day, folks. Who knows? But yeah, it's safe to say that the Moody's were... They were in the NEMS Apple Sphere umbrella thing. And a lot of the time, that means being expected to do what the suits upstairs think is best, including, but not limited to, recording a song that Paul has written, but can't do or doesn't want to do himself. Now, I never do this until I recorded this episode, so I hope again it's news for you too. And this is a quote that comes from Denny himself, talking about Paul writing songs for him in Wings specifically. He still recalls. You know what Paul's like. He's always selling his songs to somebody. He wanted us to do the thing that Mary Hopkins had a hit with. Those were the days. He didn't write it, but I think he had the rights to it. He thought it would be a good single for us, and we said, no, it's not our style, really. But he thought it was, and it probably would have been a big hit for us if we'd done it. So he got Mary Hopkins to do it, and he produced her doing it. With the Moody's, he was always checking us out because we were all writers too. That was fascinating to the Beatles. They were very much influenced by the Beach Boys and the Everly Brothers, of course, harmony-wise. They were also influenced by the Moody's in those days. Again, we had our own sound. Donovan even did the sleeve notes for the first Moody album. We were a part of a little group of people that all genuinely admired each other. Now, whilst Denny does say he admires the Beatles here, he does not say he is a fan. Let's just get that clear. Uh, and whilst it's hard not to hear a little twinge of jealousy in this next quote from Denny, it does kind of set the record straight as to how this dynamic worked with all the bands at this time. Denny says, The Beatles were a band. I wasn't a big Beatles fan, although I obviously appreciated their talent. I was not a fan though. I was in a band, the moods were rivals to the Beatles in a friendly way. They'd come by our house and place their new record and we'd play them our new record. We were friends, but still rivals. We always were. I don't look at it like being a fan then. I look at it as me working with Paul because he's a fellow musician and we all grew up together. Our working relationship was very easy because of that. Now folks, as far as I'm concerned, this is another one of those crucial factors that made Denny work in Wings in, in, in a way that a lot of other people probably would not have been able to. And that's the fact that he did not worship at the altar of Paul McCartney. You know, whether Denny thinks of himself as being better or different, or that Paul's maybe a little too commercial, something like that, whatever. Denny isn't just continually sucking him off for the sake of it. He's got his own pride, he's got his own standards, he's not wowed by just a guy who can play the bass a little bit better than him or write songs a little better than he can. You know, he still sees Paul for the human that he is, and whilst that sounds bad, I guarantee you that did more to get him into the band than anything else. You know, the fact that he wasn't a huge Beatle fan would be a big turn on for Paul. Sadly though, this association, this continued association with the biggest band of all time was not enough to save the Moody Blues. They had struggled to break the top 20 again with any of their post-Go Now singles or albums. This meant now they were also having to lower their appearance fees to keep up with the costs, and their refusal to record Those Were The Days really did not go down with Mr Epstein and the rest of the NEMS suits. 
Eventually, all of this became a little too much for Denny, and on the 10th of October 1965, he announced his official resignation from the band. Now, the only specific reason I can ever find is the ever-evasive and annoyingly vague creative differences spin that we get fed as members of the public, and I'm so jaded by this point that I never believe it, and I only ever interpret creative differences to mean that there was a big, ugly, PR-damaging bust-up with things best being left unsaid. However, like the diplomats, just because they lost Denny, it didn't mean that they were going to disband. In fact, it really didn't mean all that much to them, really, as the band would swiftly find a mahoosive new success by changing their sound to less of a bluesy style and more of a Mellotron-y, Keys experimental, you know, 60s psychedelic style, which would let them another massive worldwide single in Nights in White Satin and the album Days of Future Past. And besides, according to Brumbeat magazine, by early 66, Denny was already re-signed to the NEMS label as a solo artist. So it's not even like he left the house or the shop, you know, all well fans, well, I guess. And to close out this segment, we're going to hear another track off Denny's 1965 rushed Moody Blues album, The Magnificent Moody's, because, you know what, I don't think I've ever heard any other Denny Lane solo vocals from his time in this band, and so I imagine many of you probably haven't either. So yeah, this is Denny in the Moody Blues singing I'll Go Crazy. Denny Lane would swiftly find himself knee-deep in another project, although this time he would attempt something a little more mature, a little more ambitious, and something that would one day 
definitely secure his position within wings. This new group would also continue Denny's tradition of humble band names with the Denny Lane Electric String Orchestra Band. This new outfit featured Denny Lane on guitar and vocals, Trevor Burton of The Move on guitar, Viv Prince, formerly of Pretty Things, on drums, and Binky McKenzie on the bass guitar. Now that's a proper bassist name. Anyway, Denny was quite ahead of the curve here and was capitalizing on the orchestral pop sounds that the Beatles were only just starting to play around with. And so he added an electrified string section to the group's sound. You had the cellists, Clive Gillinson and Chris Van Kampen, and then you had the violinists, Wilhelm Martin and John Stein, all of whom were from the Royal Academy. Now, remember, this is years before the Electrolyte Orchestra ELO, and no one else was really doing anything quite like this at the time. So, one really must commend Denny for actually striving to do something different rather than, say, just doing the Moody Blues Part 2. Now, it was also during this time that Denny wrote what would go on to be one of his most successful and recognisable tunes. It might not be for anyone under the age of 40, but still, it was a popular one, and for anyone of a certain age, they'll instantly recognise it. Though a lot of people might know it from a cover version. Anyway, the song is called Say You Don't Mind, and it is fucking awesome. Though I do prefer the version he re-recorded later after Wings broke up, though since we're doing this in chronological order, I'm going to play the original version from 1967. This is Say You Don't Mind. Do you want 
just how blues man Denny was able to score something like that, well it turns out he got Tony Visconti to help him. Yes, the guy who would do the strings for Band on the Run also did him a solid right here. Denny tells the story right here saying, I wrote the song Say You Don't Mind which Colin Blundstone turned into a hit later. John Paul Jones who was doing a lot of session work wrote out the string part. He also played a bit of bass on it. That was what started the string band. By the end of the year, I played at Jimi Hendrix's gig in London. That was where Paul and John and Peter Asher saw me. They went to the gig. Paul McCartney invited me into Wings because of that gig. We were all doing the symphonic stuff, using strings. This was before ELO, mind you. The Moody started doing stuff like that later on with Justin. Now, for anyone here who is wondering who Colin Blundstone is, he was the lead singer for The Zombies, aka the people who did the original version of She's Not There, and Yes, Denny is telling the truth about the appearance in June 1967 at Brian Epstein's Savile Theatre. That was a gig where he indeed did share the bill with the Jimi Hendrix Experience and Procol Harum. So he's been on stage with the Beatles, Jimmy, Procol, you know. Denny's getting some good names in here. He really is. Though, just because he was booked for a, a couple of shows didn't mean he attended all of them. And there was a bit of a cock up here, Denny explains. And when it came to the final gig we did, which was at the Savile Theatre, which was owned by Brian Epstein, my stuff was pretty complicated. And for the first show I was supposed to do, my bass player went down sick, so I pulled out. And then John Lennon, I heard, remarked, What's Denny doing backing out? We all came down to see him. We didn't just come here to see Jimmy, we've come to see Denny. They were my friends by then, so I backed out because so no, because I knew nobody could replace. So I backed out because I knew nobody could be replaced like that. You know, it was all kinds of intricate stuff. And I did get a bass player from the Pretty Things in there in the afternoon to see if he could pull it off, but he just couldn't do it. So I backed out of the gig. But the next week there was another gig. It was two shows. So the next week I did do the show and it went down really, really well. And I knew Paul was in the audience since I knew him. I knew the Beatles very well by then because the Moody's had already done a British tour with them. I was hanging out with them. So yeah. Denny wasn't a Beatles fan, but he does drop the Beatles name into almost every anecdote he ever tells. But if any of you are wondering where you know of this story before, this gig is supposedly the same gig that has inspired McCartney to do Foxy Lady on all of his tours recently, and the same gig where supposedly Jimi Hendrix couldn't restring his guitar and had to get Eric Clapton to do it for him. Beetle law, beetle law, yada, yada, yada. But what I like so much about that quote, though, is how much it puts into perspective. Like, first of all, it's pretty crazy that the Beatles went to that show supposedly specifically to see Denny, because that's never been a part of the narrative in the countless times Paul's retold it. You know, 
Very interesting indeed. And I also like how much of a class act Denny is here. Like, he's not willing to compromise his music or his sound. You know, it's complicated and it's difficult, and so he can't just wing it, and he did pull out. I mean, imagine having the integrity to pull out of a show with Jimi Hendrix. Well done, Denny. That's pretty damn cool that you won't be compromised like that. However, like the Moody's, there does seem to be a bit of a pattern where Denny has instant big success and then kind of struggles to follow it up as the Dandelion Electric String Orchestra Band had a distinct lack of professionalism and so they were a nightmare to organise with them being constantly plagued by uncoordinated rehearsals and rotating band members. Still, despite these setbacks, the Denny Lane String Orchestra Band were drawing critical acclaim and crowds wherever they performed, especially at all of London's hippest venues like the Marquee, the UFO Club, the Roundhouse, the Middle Earth Club, and the Swan Pub. Then, folks, we get to the end of the story, and this is an element I had no fucking idea about until I started this episode, and get ready because it is crazy. So, why did the Denny Lane Electronic String Orchestra Band end? Well, on the morning of the 27th of August 1967, Denny went round to Brian Epstein's house in order to book some more gigs, but he received no reply when he rang the doorbell. Now, this is the part of the story where I assume that maybe like Brian had lost interest in him or dropped him as an act, but unbeknownst to Denny and unbeknownst to anyone at that time, Brian wasn't ignoring him. No, this was actually the morning after Brian had died of an accidental drug overdose. Presumably, Denny left in a confused huff, as Brian wasn't found until much later that day by his housekeeper after breaking the door down. Sadly, much in the way that Brian's death spelled the end for the Beatles, so too did that fate fall upon the Denny Lane Electronic String Orchestra Band. Which is probably for the best, really, because I've been really struggling to say that band name for this whole time, and there have been so many retakes. And so we're going to press right onto Denny's next entry on his CV, and this would come in the form of a jam session with another supergroup. And this new band would be Blind Faith. Yes, that Blind Faith. The band whose members comprised of ex-Beatle collaborator Eric Clapton, fellow Brummy Steve Winwood, Rick Grech on bass, and old friend of Denny's Ginger Baker on the drums. Basically, during an unsuccessful recording session with Chris Blackwell, the group members, along with their entourage, grew restless, mainly due to the long amount of time it was taking to set things up, and eventually Denny, who was probably only there because he was Ginger's friend, just grabbed a guitar and started playing, resulting in all the others joining in and everyone having a swell time. Ginger Baker himself recalled later, we all started playing along with him and he completely lifted the mood. And being that this was a session that Denny Lane took part in, of course it was one that was ultimately left unrecorded, much to the fury of his mate Ginger Baker, with Baker apparently getting so mad that basically everyone left the studio out of fear of him. Anyway, like Denny, it's time to keep on moving forward. And I believe I mentioned this period in the R Lane episode that I did with Chloe Costello a while ago. But after this period of being in loads of bands and people constantly fucking around with his plans and ambitions, in May of 1969, Denny decided that he needed some time off and said fuck it to the world of show business. Denny decided that he was going to go off 
and moved to Spain, to a little town near Seville called Moron de Florenta, for a few months to live in quote-unquote the gypsy lifestyle. Denny recalls, I was adrift for a bit. I went to live in Spain and stayed at the house of an American guy so I could study flamenco guitar. So Denny needs to get away from the country, far away from suits and other annoying creatives when things were getting a little too overwhelming for him. I mean, does this totally not mirror Paul McCartney? Come on, be honest now, folks. Anyway, after a few months of living the gypsy lifestyle, in October of 1969, Denny Lane returned to the UK, where manager Tony Secunda was seemingly waiting for him at the airport. Why? Well, Secunda had the bright idea to form another Brummy supergroup, much in the same vein as Steve Winwood's now successful Traffic. This new lineup would be formed of Denny himself, Trevor Burton of The Move, and Steve Gibbon of The Uglies. However, the name they chose was far less marketable and somehow more ubiquitous, I guess, than Traffic. They settled with Balls. Yes, Balls. As in, Balls. And so, with a quick cash injection from Tony Secunda, this new Midlands supergroup made a, a move that, again, kind of feels very McCartney-esque in retrospect, and so they rented a farmhouse near Reading in order to write some songs to get it together in the country. Secunda continued the traffic ripoff vibe by hiring Traffic's producer, Jimmy Miller, to handle the group's sound. Unfortunately, the local pub and liberal use of certain substances on the farm resulted in not a lot getting done musically or otherwise. It's almost like Denny needs a pathological workaholic to help keep him on track and to help fulfill his ambitions or something. Once all the money ran out, the band swiftly fell apart, with the only record release being a solitary single titled Fight For My Country, which turned out to be quite a catchy little anti-war anthem composed by Trevor Burton. Now, this is one of those songs where I'm just blown away that it's even on YouTube. I feel very lucky that this resource was available. And so let's listen to Fight For My Country by Balls. Sailors said I'm going 
After balls deflated, Denny then decided to stop coyly flirting with his friend Ginger Baker and actually decided to join a band of his. This was after Cream, mind you, and so resulted in another brief stint for Denny in the form of Ginger Baker's Air Force. Although, as Denny seems to hint at here, back in those days, it was not at all that hard to put a band together because everyone on the scene knew and liked each other. He says, On the Moody Blues' first tour, Graham Bond had Ginger Baker and Jack Bruce playing with him. That's where I got to know Ginger. I was hanging out with Trevor Burton. We were in balls, and Ginger was playing Blind Faith. I already knew Steve Winwood, you see, so I got to know Blind Faith. Then Ginger wanted to put a big band together and told me his plan. I knew some people. Alan White was the drummer for Balls, Trevor Burton from The Move, and I knew Jim Capaldi. Ginger went off the rails a bit. He had health issues, so we only did the one album in the end. A lot of people say he's a maniac, but I like him. He's an honest guy, and I'm still in touch with him to this day. Now, even though the last group was supposedly Denny's first attempt at a supergroup, that moniker is far more appropriate here, as it included both members from Traffic and Blind Faith, the two previous supergroups. So now we had Denny, Rick Greck, Steve Winwood, and Chris Wood. The short-lived nature of Ginger Baker's Air Force meant that Denny only got to play with them live two times. Once at Birmingham Town Hall in 69, and then at once at the London Royal Albert Hall in early 1970. The London show, though, was recorded for a resulting live album, from which Denny Lane's rendition of the standard Man of Constant Sorrow was issued as a single. Because, as we know, the last example of Denny doing a, an old American standard was a big hit. So it makes sense. Now, there really isn't much more information on Ginger Baker's Air Force. It really was just one of those fleeting things. But... My God, it's just great to see that Denny's passion for starting new bands is never diminished or quelled. You know, he, he keeps going for it. He keeps giving it a stab. And I could just really admire him for that. Anyway, let's hear Denny's version of Man of Constant Sorrow. Though, listen out, you, you can actually hear Denny changing the name of Kentucky in the lyrics to Birmingham, but not Birmingham, Alabama. Let's go. Yeah, Benny Lane, the man of constant sorrow.
unfortunately, Denny's bad luck with bands was set to continue here because Ginger Baker's Air Force too suffered from lineup changes, general disorganisation, and even Baker's own crippling heroin addiction. By the end of 1970, in very much the same way that Wings would quote-unquote fold, you could say that Ginger Baker's Air Force was grounded. So, after this string of near successes and royal cock-ups, you would have thought that Denny would have had enough of this shtick. But no, he kept on trucking, and by early 1971, Denny had started another new group, this time with bass player Steve Thompson of the Bullfrogs, guitarist John Mooreshead from both the Heavy and the Ainsley Dunbar Retaliation, and drummer Peter Trout, who even Discogs barely has any information on. Now, even in the relatively obscure annals of the Denny Lane story, this band is a bit of a misnomer, as it doesn't even have a name, and it was also completely unrecorded again. However, I do think it is safe to say that some of the material that would make its way onto our lane, an album we're going to talk about soon, likely started around this time. But why did he abandon this new unnamed band? Well, let's just say that one morning, whilst Denny was at home, he got a certain phone call from a certain scouser inviting him up to Scotland. Yes, here we are, folks. We are now catching up with the story that we've been telling on this podcast for well over half a decade. You know the routine by now, right? I mean, this should all be practically carved into your brain right now, but let's just go over it for the sake of completion with this episode. Of course, the Beatles had broken up by this point. Paul does the solo self-titled album and a little album with Linda called Ram. And it's clear that after these two sessions that he's not committed to this solo idea just yet and he wants to be in a band again and who wouldn't want to start a band after those ram sessions you know what i'm saying and so paul decides to put one together but there is a twist and this could be seen as either the greatest strength or weakness of wings in that the main idea really was to find a band that people paul enjoyed to work with and hang out with of course there had to be a musicality there and a commonality of reference points, but, you know, Wings was more about the vibe. Paul was going to be doing a lot of work, but he still needed to have people who would be cool to chill out with while he was doing all of that work. I think that's the oversimplified way to put it, but you get the idea. And so, Paul decided to hit up Denny, completely out of the blue. How lovely, right? I mean, we all know that Paul and Denny are very similar musically, they've both got similar backgrounds, and they do know each other, so it's not like it's completely out of the blue. But, you know, I'll let Paul put it in his own words. He said, I wanted another male to sing along, and I remember Denny Lane, whom I'd known from the days with the Moody Blues. They toured with the Beatles, and we had some good laughs. I'd always admired the way he sang Go Now. I knew he was a good singer and a nice guy. So I asked him if he wanted to be in a band with us, and he said yes. With me on bass, Linda on keyboard, Denny Sowell on drums, and Denny Lane on guitar, that became the first lineup of the band. However, Paul's greatest ever side compliment towards Denny would come when he was explaining the same decision in the Wildlife Archive re-release many years later. He said, To put it truthfully, I needed a John, someone who was kind of equal to me, who could sing harmonies, and who I could sing harmonies with, and we'd been on tour together, so I knew he was a fun guy. And yes, that does make this the second John Lennon connection to Denny Lane in this episode now. Even Paul, in an offhand way, putting Denny and John in the same sentence alone is 
massive. It really is. And it does show the kind of relationship that that they had. I think that's fair to say. Paul never says he was John. He does say kind of equal to me. So that is also quite telling. You know, Paul is also letting us know that they weren't true equals. But still, no one ever mentions this. I mean, all the time, the comparisons between Elvis Costello and John Lennon are always brought up when, when talking about Flowers in the Dirt. But no one ever truly gives Denny that that title. And of course, people are reluctant to give that title because Paul does the majority of the songwriting in Wings. And we even have quotes from Denny where he explains that he was at times more than happy to sit back and let Paul do all the work. And so Denny always gets demoted to the title of Sideman. And I really do think that that underestimates the songwriting process. I mean, we all get great bullet points and quotes about the writing of songs, quips and facts to store in our brains, but the actual process is a lot more amorphic and obscure to the naked eye. We don't know how Denny influenced songs in other ways. We don't know what's been misremembered or just not told by Paul, you know, and by Denny. In all the interviews, Denny's got a really bad memory, so there's a distinct possibility that so many of these songs that we're going to talk about during the Wings period actually do have more Denny involved in them than we might know. So just remember that going in. Anywho, now that we've heard Paul's side of the story, let's hear Denny's. Let's hear how he got into Wings in his own eyes. This quote comes from the promotional tour that he was doing for the Holidays album, another album we're going to be talking about shortly, and he describes his meeting with Paul as thus. I knew him from the Beatle days. After the Moody's and the string band, I was trying to make it again, but it wasn't really going my way, as I wasn't getting the kind of results that I wanted. I started to make this R Lane album, but again, it wasn't to be believed. Let's put it this way, I'm the sort of person that, if I'm not believed, I'll be stubborn to the point of being a maniac. It was just a mock-up to prove myself. Anyway, Paul just happened to call me up, and it was this weekend that I'd just finished some of the mixes from that album. So... When he called me up and just said, thank Christ for that, now I have someone to work with from whom I don't have to explain everything to. So that was the decider, really. Just one of those things of fate. I think I've some idea of the way Paul feels about things. I know the kind of pressure he's under because I've been through a lot of the same stuff myself. The longer you go on, the tougher it is in a lot of ways. People expect more and more from you. For Paul, having been part of the best rock and roll band in history, it must be very heavy. I admire him so much for the way he handles it, and he doesn't let it interfere with his music. Now, we do know that the fact that Hugh McCracken was declining to come back up to Scotland was probably one of the large parts in why Paul drafted Denny into the band in the first place, and so, especially with the passage of time, we're never really going to know all of the other guitarists that Paul may or may not have considered as potential members, but... It is interesting, though, that Paul could have had anyone in the whole wide world to choose from, and yet he thought of Denny Lane. Again, that could not be a greater compliment or testament to his skill set. Also, not to say that Denny needed this gig per se, but he had spent a large amount of time in the last few years either unemployed or roaming the countryside. And so when an article from late 1971 describes Denny as sleeping on a mattress in a single-room apartment... You can't say he was in much of a position to turn it down. Nor was he going to be in much of a position to turn down, say, generous but not exactly extravagant wages for the next few years. 
this will be an important point just to keep in the back of your mind. But yeah, in taking on lead and rhythm guitars, lead and backing vocals, keyboards, as well as filling in on the bass when Paul was on his piano, Denny really was going to be the Wings handyman. He had to do everything. And so he, he was, he was going to have his work cut out for him. But thanks to that multicultural, multi-instrumental background, it was likely that he probably was one of the very few people that could have done this exact job. Although Denny doesn't seem to think it's that lofty a challenge himself, stating in that aforementioned article from 71. To be in a group, you don't have to be Beethoven. You just have to be a capable person who can work with other musicians. Again, sounding a lot like the qualifications to be in Wings. Carrying on with that interview, clearly a lot of ideas were already floating around in this early Wings period. You know, they were spitballing, seeing what would stick. And a lot of it would come to define the Wings sound. Denny continues, Paul's been saying that he'd like to feature some of my own songs on stage, as well as the ones that he and Linda have written. We're still working everything out. On some tours we may use string, on others brass, but at the moment we're just working on the basis of the group, which is the four of us. It's all very much a family thing, which is the only way it can work for a group. Any group has to be this family thing. Now, as far as I'm concerned, the move to let Denny do his own songs, both composed within and more importantly, outside of Wings, was a key move that would not only go on to give Wings some greater success, because I mean, I love hearing Denny do Go Now and Say You Don't Mind live, but it's also something that would make Denny feel more wanted and a more active, semi-kinder, to quote Paul, equal member of the band. Like, it doesn't matter whether it was true or not, and by the end of the episode we will certainly know how Denny felt about all of that, but it's important that Denny in this early stage felt like he was an active contributing member of the band and he does. And so that is going to explain a lot of his loyalties going forward. I think that's fair to say. Paul definitely made Denny want to be in this band. He's getting paid reasonably well. He's getting to showcase himself solo. And as we're going to see shortly, he's even going to be able to do some solo stuff as well. Denny is set for the next 10 years. He is in wings and he is in it for the long haul. However, we can't quite cover all of that just yet because it is now time for us to take a break and catch up with the... Housekeeping! Hello everyone, welcome to the middle of the show. We're going to take a little break as per usual. I hope you're all enjoying the episode thus far. I really am. But yeah, let's crack on with the news because there's quite a bit to cover actually. And our first piece this week is the announcement of yet another upcoming vinyl release. Yes, folks, it is time for another Paul McCartney 50th anniversary half-speed master album. And considering the last one earlier this year was Red Road Speedway, so no points will be awarded if you have correctly guessed that. Yes, it's time for Band on the Run. This new version of the album, like the 800th version of the album, will, like the rest of the series, feature that HQ half-speed remaster audio, but unlike the others in this series, there's a little more, as there is a second disc included in some formats of this album. There is a two-disc set, and on this second disc, we get Band on the Run again, but they are the underdub mixes. What's an underdub, I hear you ask? Well, it's the opposite of an overdub, and so it's basically the stripped-down, orchestra-less version of Band on the Run. 
MPL has already released the title track online as a little teaser, and I recommend that you go and check it out as soon. Oh, sod it. There's already too much music in this episode anyway, so let's just hear the clip. Of course, folks, I am a huge fan of this Half-Speed Archive series. We've already had Half-Speed remasters of McCartney, Ram, Wildlife, and, of course, Red Road Speedways. And so far, I'm incredibly in impressed and consistently impressed with this series as a whole. And I'm definitely going to be picking this up. I was going to be picking it up either way, but that little comparison there has already sold me on the bonus disc as well. And unlike all the bullshit we had with Red Road Speedway being a, a record day exclusive, this new band on the run is already available on McCartney's web store, as it should be. Although it is hard not to be a little bit cynical considering the fact that this one's probably available for commercial release and the other one wasn't because of the inherent greater commerciality of Band on the Run. It's gonna sell more, isn't it? But yeah, overall, quite excited for this one, especially when compared to another release we're gonna be talking about. Um, and, I, and I am glad that they're doing something a little bit different with these half-speed masters. Especially, you know, I'm someone who never got the majority of the archive editions, and so I'm always happy to gain access to new material. But, on the other hand, this is going to piss off the original collectors of those archive sets. Especially in this case, because... Are you telling me that MPL and Paul didn't have access to these quote-unquote underdubbed mixes back in 2010 it seems a bit suspect to me especially considering how comparatively bare bones and lightweight the original 2010 band on the run archive edition is i mean especially when compared to flaming pine flowers in the dirt so it seems a bit odd that they've done this rather than say just mix the two together and do a half speed remaster archive set of Band on the Run. I know it would fuck people's shelves up and their organisations like no other album ever released, but there's a bit of a we're being drip fed content feeling here, though I'm happy to buy it. It's different, it's unique, it's only so far available on this set and that exclusivity is going to attract a more inane collector such as myself. Next up, we have some even more chart news for Now and Then, the Beatles' supposed last ever single, but we all know that's not going to happen. And at the time of recording, whilst Now and Then is holding firm in the top 100 here in the UK, at the number 54 spot in the singles chart, I do have to report that sadly, it has now left the US Billboard top 100 singles chart. 
Uh, oh well, easy come, easy go. But what I do like here is that for once, the UK singles chart is showing the most love to the fabs for once. Again, how it should be. Although, as one door closes, another annual one opens. And for this new segment, I do, I do want to quickly talk about Paul and John on the Christmas charts. You know, it's always nice to talk about these two names on the charts for whatever reason, but I, I have, actually haven't really mentioned it in a new segment before. So let's just talk about Christmas single charts. And here in the UK, Happy Christmas War Is Over by John and Yoko is at number 21, nearly cracking the top 20, followed swiftly by Wonderful Christmas Time by Paul at number 25. Just for context, the number one song in the UK right now at the time of recording is Last Christmas by Wham. Then in the US, unfortunately, Happy Xmas War Is Over is not in the top 100 at all, which is odd considering that that song came out in America before it did in England, so it, it had more time to have a cultural impact. That's strange. Uh, and Wonderful Christmas Time is just sat outside of the top 40 at number 41. And for context, the number one track in the US right now is Brenda Lee's Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree. Then, folks, we come to probably one of the most controversial news pieces we've had in recent months on Paul or Nothing, with the release of yet another Paul McCartney anniversary vinyl re-release. Now, with the band on the, on, the, on the run one, as you saw, this is typically something to be overjoyed with, especially for me, considering the fact that my wonderful Patreon patrons normally end up footing the bill. But in a rather shocking turn of events, we've had a contemporary McCartney vinyl product that I won't even be spending other people's money on. Yeah. It's that serious. So, hot on the heels of a mostly very well-received Band on the Run half-speed remaster thing, we now have... Oh, I can't believe I'm going to say this out loud. The third year anniversary of McCartney 3. Yeah, you heard me, everyone. That's right. <laughs> Unless you've been living under a rock with no Wi-Fi connection this last week, you've likely heard about this already. But yeah, McCartney, or perhaps more likely... MPL have decided that it would be cute to release three new multicolour vinyl editions of McCartney 3 with brand new artwork and each one containing various little goodies like replicas of handwritten lyrics, etc. Now again, normally this would be fine as we as the fandom would take it lying down and just buy it without saying boo to a goose, right? Well no, not this time. Seemingly, the bow has begun to break for a few fans out there, and I really can't blame them. Uh, I really empathise with people going, oh god, what is this? We're really expected to buy this, and, well, let, I'll explain why. First of all, who asked for this? Like, yeah, it's cute! That on the third anniversary of McCartney 3, we get it, but... Who wanted this more than an archive re-release of London Town, Back to the Egg, Press to Play, or Off the Ground? And then we'll get more obscure. Who wanted this more than, say, uh, a repressing of all the early 2000s vinyl that's really hard to get and is really expensive? Or a repressing of Chobber with the full track listing? Or a reprint of New, but that's got the um, audio balanced on it, you know? Hey, how about a re-release of McCartney 3 with some new bonus tracks? You know, we didn't get any of that. Instead, we got the same McCartney 3 that we've already got with nothing new. It's just another cut.
color. And this again would be fine if we didn't already have, what was it 13, 14, 15, 16 color variants of McCartney 3? I forget the font of the font of the quote, but it was too many. And then there was McCartney 3 Imagined as well. And so it just feels like MPL is pushing us and experimenting on us to see what it will take for us not to buy something. And look, don't let this rant get in the way of you buying a copy. More power to you if you want to pick up a copy of this album. But be warned, it's not even as easy a process as that. Because someone at MPL had the genius idea of making every purchase of this album a random lottery. Yes, there are three distinct discs to get with McCartney 3 3rd Anniversary. <laughs> However, if you want to pick up all three and you buy three copies online, you are not guaranteed to get anything. You may end up with three of the exact same one, two of one and one of the other, one of two, two of the other, any combination. And there's just no guarantee out there for the discerning collector. And, you know, it might be some effort to make sure that everyone gets one copy, but let's face it, no one who's buying a copy of McCartney 3 three years later is just going to be buying one of them if there are more available. The, you know, there were, there, there were people who bought McCartney 3 one copy on vinyl and then there were the people who bought 20 copies of it, you know? There were people who bought one copy of Now and Then and then there were people who bought every format. And this would be just the same, but you can't even get that. So even if you want to get suckered into this, you can't even get suckered in on your own terms. Now look, we all know that this is still going to make a bunch of money for MPL, and even if all of you listening out there don't buy it, it's still going to sell out. But it does feel as if there's a concerted effort to not just give us what we want. Come on, we're a willing fandom, we want to buy new colour variants of Driving Rain and Unplugged and memory almost full and new. Come on, just give it to us. What's with the holdup? This really feels like something that was cooked up at an executive board meeting where someone was supposed to have thought something up over the weekend and they and they didn't. They were, they were partying too much. Uh, they had too many sherbets. And then by the time they got in on Monday, they just made up something on the spot. Oh, um, um, well, there was McCartney 333, and there was McCartney 123, so how about on the third edition of McCartney 3, we do a third anniversary release? And then everyone in the boardroom just, like, went... <coughs> slow clapped it, and then they put it into production. It's... Rant over, folks. Go out and buy it if you want, but I'm certainly not going to be buying it, and I'm 100% definitely not going to be spending the hard-earned cash that my wonderful Patreon patrons have given me and wasting it on something like this. No. Anyway, to round out this new segment that is already in the middle of an already lengthy tribute to Demi Lane, I have to show you another one. Um, in a bit of shameless self-promotion, in the middle of some shameless self-promotion, I thought I would share a clip that I've recently come into possession of that I am incredibly proud of. Basically, once I heard that Denny had passed away, I knew that I wanted to have a fellow Brummy give him an appropriate tribute, but not just on this podcast. I wanted the, the Birmingham audience the day after to hear about Denny and have someone present him in the best light possible and just talk some good talk about him, get people interested. And so, 
I rang up my local region of the BBC, that's a BBC WM, BBC West Midlands, and I asked them if they were going to be talking about Denny. They were, and so I said if they needed an expert, they better call someone else, but if they were happy to have a nobody brummy podcaster such as myself on to lead a tribute, then I was happy to help. And fuck me, they actually called me back. And I actually got to go on BBC WM for just under 10 minutes. I was so happy about this. I'm incredibly proud of it. Mostly because it's something that like, my mom could understand. Like, She doesn't really get what podcasting is, but she understood the significance of me appearing on BBC WM. So in a bit of uh, shameless pride here, something I never normally feel, I'm going to play the clip. This is my appearance on BBC WM at 11.15 in the morning on December 6th, 2023. Take it away, Kath. So Ultrages Sam Wiles is the host of the Paul or Nothing podcast, love that name, and joins me now. Hi, Sam. Hey, Kath, what's going on? Thank you yeah, so much for having me. You're very, very welcome. Uh, thanks for coming on. We thought we, we would mark this because, again, it's someone who I, I think I've been referring to as a musician's musician because that's what Denny Lane was, right? Yeah, 100%. I mean, he's been rubbing shoulders with all of the greats since the very earliest days of, of the uh, 60s British invasion um he's he's pretty much played in a band with everyone if you go back but like he'll have been in that band for two months and, and they didn't release an album but he can still check off those famous names and they and they all run through him uh he's certainly one of the most pervasive uh birmingham artists to ever emerge and i mean when you consider that uh when mullikintyre came out he was the co-writer on that that was the biggest single in the UK at the time. It beat the Beatles, She Loves You. And so for a quite a long time, the biggest song in the UK was co-written by a Brummie. So that's one of my favourite things about, about Danny Lane, really is. Yeah, I mean, this really speaks to something that I was thinking about actually the other day, which is actually people struggle sometimes to get the full list of... A success in music from the West Midlands because some of it is a bit more hidden, and when and like musicians know about it, but maybe the general public or the household stuff, it's not as you know. It, we, we've got the big ones, but people are a bit like, oh, I'm not sure where to go after Black Sabbath or whatever. Actually, there are loads of people who've been hugely influential in lots of different ways mm. that are from the West Midlands, and Denny Lane's one of them. Yeah, I mean, everyone from. Uh, Jasper Carrot to Denny Lane, you know, um, <laughs> there's uh, there's no end to the uh, the influence. Really, um, it is it is a it's been a bit of a shock. It really it it really has. Um, I mean, we'd we we'd heard on the grapevine. Uh, Denny's Denny's wife's been rather open on social media about about his condition. There was a benefit concert last month in in November. That was a, a star studded thing. And we kind of thought that that was going to be like a positive turnaround. We'd heard some good things, but unfortunately, as we heard yesterday, he has passed away. And um, it's a bit of a it's been a, a heartbreak for the fandom uh, for Paul McCartney fans. Denny's one of those kind of low key fan favourites. Like most Beatles fans who try to pretend like they're cool and different will be like, "Well, actually, aren't like George and Ringo." That's a bit of a Denny Lane uh, angle to take because. He 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 really is the the underdog in that story, uh, in 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 the Wings narrative. Obviously, he came up with loads of bands earlier. Obviously, the mood the Moody Blues was the big one. You played Go Now, just uh, that really established him on the scene. 
But then you've got things like the electric string uh, orchestra band through to the George Baker stuff. He does uh, Say You Don't Mind, which becomes a twenty uh, top 20 hit for Colin Bluestone of the Zombies. Uh, but once he gets into Wings, um, the actual benefit of him being a Brummy actually comes to the forefront because there really wasn't much of a, of a music scene when he was first dying in the very early 60s. But what Birmingham did have was a very diverse population and a very multicultural workforce. And this meant that Denny, when he was learning music, he wasn't just learning rock and pop, but he had blues, reggae, country, musical, all styles that coincidentally he would end up having to do in a band with Paul McCartney because Paul McCartney never does the same thing twice. He never does the same album twice or the same song twice. And so if Denny thought he was going to be in a blues band with Paul from, you know, the next uh, foreseeable future, that was never going to happen. But fortunately he was... (laughs) multifaceted and multi-talented in in a in a very special way um how did I mean, he how did they meet how did how did denny get involved i mean i presume it's through mu- the musical world and musical circles how did he meet maca really and get involved there so that comes in the form of yet another band uh denny and the diplomats who were really big in birmingham back in the day um, but they were famously never on on record. There were a few like fan demos here and there, but uh, they were the opening act for the Beatles at the Plaza Ballroom in July of '63, I believe. Uh, that's that's likely where they first met. But obviously, once he was in the Moody Blues, he's he's up there with the Faces and the Kinks and the, and the Stones at all the right parties. So it's it's clear that he and Paul were were rubbing shoulders that way. And the thing with Wings is. Paul didn't decide, oh, you know, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pick the best band with all the, with all the best artists. He didn't do that. Instead, he just picked people he wanted to hang out with because he knew he was going to be on tour with them. He was meant to be a touring band. And for him to immediately think of Denny, I think, really speaks to his character. Yeah. Like, you know, the biggest artist in the world who could have easily just gone, okay, let's get Clapton and Billy Preston. I'll just do a super group. No, I'm going to pick this, this uh, Brummy lad who's got a nice sense of humour and I like having a drink with him. I think yeah. that is And he's pretty good as well. <laughs> like, good, pretty good as well. But I know what you mean. He could have had that stardom thing, but he didn't. He wanted someone he got on with and, and quite right too. Um, mm. And obviously, Sir Paul, lead, you know, leading those tributes, you think that would have been straight away as soon as he heard it. You know, he would have been keen to, um, to sort of put that out there because it is a lovely, a lovely tribute that he's made. Yeah, um, thank, thankfully, as he says in the tribute, they did patch up after the uh, uh, breakup in recent years. That was always something nice to read on social media when Denny was putting that out there as well. And it is rather fitting because uh, Denny was there with Paul at Air Studios uh, the day after everyone found out John Lennon had been shot, uh, had been assassinated. And Denny was there with Paul when Paul f- leaned you know, he was leaning out the window and he saw a, a, a green truck and it had Lennon furnishings on it or something like that. And Paul turns to Denny and he's like, I'm never going to fall out with someone again and not make up with them. Like nothing like that's ever going to happen again. Wow. And I'm glad Paul lived up to that and it didn't happen with Denny and they did uh, make up in the end. Oh, yeah, because I, I mean, bands, bands, isn't it? <laughs> that can be quite uh, difficult places. I know I'm, a, I'm in one. And sometimes, you know, mm-hmm. it isn't easy. And uh, th- when you're at that level, it must be very difficult. But yeah, they made up and, and that tribute from Maka is, is really, really lovely. Um, thank you so much for talking to us, Sam. It's been great. Awesome. No, thank you for having me on. I, I just wanted to give a, a shout to one of Birmingham's finest sons. Rest in peace, Denny. And 
uh, I, I end every episode of my podcast with uh, the song No Words from Band on the Run. Uh, obviously, Danny died on the 50th anniversary of the US release of that album. And uh, I always close out every episode by saying, play us out, Denny. So if you don't mind, just on BBC WM, play us out, Denny. Oh, Sam, thank you so much. Oh, that's very moving. Sam Wiles from Aldridge, host of the podcast Paul or Nothing. <laughs> yep, that literally was me on BBC WM here in the West Midlands in the UK. I'm so happy about how that went. I could have talked for another 20 minutes about Denny easily. I mean, this episode is already well over an hour and a half long already. But yeah, that really was a little treat just for me. And I hope you enjoyed it as well. Right, now that all the news is done, let's just get the plugs out of the way as fast as we can because it feels grimy enough even doing them on an episode like this. So here we go. To get in contact with the show, drop us an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Follow us on our Twitter page at mccartney.com for written content. Check out the blog, which is paulmccartneypod.wordpress.com. Follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and YouTube by typing Paul or Nothing or Paul McCartney Podcast. And then please give us some form of interaction, like a like, a thumbs up, some stars, a comment, whatever. And finally, if you like what I'm doing here on the show, if you want to help keep the lights running and get loads of bonus extras, then please consider joining our Patreon family. But that really is it. And so let's get back to the life of Denny Lane.
And with that, we now come to early December 1971 with Wings' first release, Wildlife. Now, being that this is an album that was both built from the scraps of the Ram sessions and from some very rushed Bob Dylan-esque basement sessions, that meant that Denny didn't have a song on their debut album. Although that's kind of fair enough. They really weren't an official thing yet. They were still working things out. But you can still hear a lot of the stuff that would become distinctive Denny Lane-isms throughout the rest of Wing's career. We've got his ripping electric guitar work on Mumbo, his soft acoustic flourishes on Some People Never Know, his capable backup bass playing on Tomorrow, as well as the first demonstration that the Wing's harmonies were categorically going to be all killer and no filler from here on out, on tracks like Love is Strange and even the title song. Then we come to the year of 1972, which was a year of no Wings albums, but a whole lot of Wings single releases, as the band tried to consolidate their image somewhat, as well as adding a new lead guitarist, which fully cemented Denny's role more as the everyman and rhythm guitarist within the band. Again, no real standout moments for Denny here during this year, but... That doesn't mean that Denny didn't enjoy this year at all because it actually had two tours with Wings. So if anything, they were doing more this year than they would be doing in the latter years. The first of these famous slash infamous tours was the Wings University Tour in the February. This tour had 11 dates and was, as we know, just the band trying to figure themselves out and figure out what the shtick was going to be. And you really can tell because... There are some dates in this tour where Henry McCullough will either get one or two songs per show, and yet Denny doesn't do any of his own material here at all. Which I thought was odd, seeing as how they even spoke about him doing his solo stuff already. But then we get to the Wings Over Europe tour, something a little more professional, something with a little more substantial, with more than double the number of performances. But... This is where things start to pick up a little for Denny as he gets to play both Say You Don't Mind and I Would Only Smile on almost every recorded show. It was also during the Wings Over Europe tour that Denny would meet and fall in love with a model and kind of professional groupie by the name of Jojo Lepatri. They would become a couple for almost the rest of this story. Now, of course... The rumour is that Jojo was after Paul the entire time and this led to a lot of awkward moments between her and Linda, for example, especially when Linda was pregnant, for example, and maybe wasn't comfortable about having bikini-clad women on the fair carol. But hey, that's all just conjecture and tabloid junk for another episode, not for this one. Now, I actually can't find the dates... Now, I can't find the exact dates here for their births, but Denny and Jojo over the next couple of years would give birth to a little boy named Lane Hines and a little girl named Heidi Hines. And if you think that all of this already sounds like a lot on one's plate, Denny was also doing a lot of recording in 72. Recordings that would give birth to the first of our three releases for Denny in 1973, which is Red Rose Speedway, released in the May. 
Now, as we know, even before the likes of Wings at the Speed of Sound, Red Rose Speedway was meant to be a showcase album for the whole band. It was going to have something for everyone and a stand-up moment for every band on this expansive set. But based on the lower-than-expected sales and relative poor reception of Wildlife, the record company panicked, taking the double album of Red Rose Speedway and paring it down to a single LP. Now, this meant half the songs were going to have to go. And included in that half, sadly, was Denny's own song, as well as his lead vocal on I Lie Around. Meaning that for a second album in a row now, Denny did not have a solo vocal. Even though Little Lamb Dragonfly does literally sound exactly like Denny singing lead, I won't be swayed on that point. It definitely does. Still... At least Denny got to be on the B-side of the big single that year, Live and Let Die, with I Lie Around, and he would get to keep I Would Only Smile for himself. And it sounded a little something like this. Anyway, in terms of some other Denny-based highlights from the Red Rose Speedway sessions, the main takeaways are his catchy-as-hell acoustic guitar on Big Barn Bed, his precise electric guitar work on Hands of Love, he also snuck some harmonica onto Lazy Dynamite, as well as, and, and brace yourself for this, folks, the drumming on Single Pigeon? Like, who the fuck here knew that? None of you. Don't lie. Of course, we also have the continuation of the Heavenly Wings harmonies, which are especially highlighted on tracks like My Love, When the Night, and Little Lamb Dragonfly. It says Denny only did overdubs for that song, but it still sounds like he did the original lead vocal. Again, I won't be swayed. And finally, one of the big behind-the-scenes things that Denny did was to convince Paul to include the rocker Get On The Right Thing on the album, which was recorded during the Ramsec which was recorded during the Ram sessions and considered unfinished by Paul himself, but Denny, with enough encouragement, got him to finish it off. Red Rose Speedway will also see Denny's first taste of the awards season, as the hit single, Live and Let Die, was nominated for an Oscar, as well as two Grammys, winning one of them. Just not the one that Denny could have received. What do I mean? Well, the award that Live and Let Die won at the Grammys was for Best Arrangement for an Accompanying Vocalist or Vocalists, which was awarded solely to George Martin. And the one that Denny was included with was Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Duo, Group or Chorus. But sadly, they lost that Grammy to Gladys Knight and the Pip song, Neither of Us Wants to Be the First to Say Goodbye.
Now, on to the next big event in 1973, and it's not one of the other two releases of that year. No, Mr. Lane was very busy, and in the spring-slash-summer of that year, Wings did a tour of the UK. This one was slightly smaller at 21 performances, but it was all in one country, so it's a little more localised. Though, it was also far more organised and professional, which would certainly have started to make Denny feel like this is truly what he wanted to be doing with his life. Tour dates were announced well in advance, everything was sell-out, and even extra dates were added to meet demand. All things that felt like the big time. This tour was also arguably the best in terms of representing Denny as a solo entity, especially you know, before the Wings originals enter the set, because here we get the truly optimal combination of him performing both Go Now and Say You Don't Mind. But not only that... It was almost like a little mini Denny highlight set in the middle of the gig, as those two songs were often back to back. Now, this, this doesn't mean it was all roses, as Denny still really wasn't earning the big bucks that one might assume. McCartney's practice with the non-McCartney members of the band was that they did not earn a share of the receipts, but rather a flat rate of £70 a week, with a £1,000 bonus paid upon the tour's conclusion. Yeah, Denny was going to have to find some other sources of supplementary income. Which rather nicely leads us right into Denny's first full solo release with the album Ah Lane in 1973. Of course, I've already done an episode on this with Chloe Costello, so please go ahead and check that episode out if you haven't already. But to give you the cliff notes, most of this material had either been recorded before joining Wings or recorded in the summer of 73 directly after the tour. The band this time around included John Mooreshead on guitars. He was briefly part of the Shotgun Express with Rod Stewart, McFleetwood and Peter Green. Then we have Steve Thompson on bass guitar. He was the bass player for John Mayle as well as Stone the Crows. We've got Colin Allen on drums and percussion. Again, he was in Stone the Crows, which is also the band Jim McCulloch was in before joining Wings. He also co-wrote lyrics to two McCulloch songs that he used during his tenure with Wings, which were Medicine Jar and Wano Junko. Then on backing vocals, we've got Phobia Layob, which is probably a fake name, and Mary McCreary. Um, those two people only have credits on Discogs, so they are probably fake. And the producer was Ian Horn, who also did the backing vocals on No Words on Band on the Run, apparently. Yeah, very strange. Anyway, featuring all Denny Lane originals, Our Lane is the combination of every style and genre that Denny had picked up on his travels. The album is admittedly probably just for ultimate wings completionists, but if you like the idea of an entire album of Denny's eclectic creativity and style, then please do and go check it out, as it does have some real highlights. You've got the instrumental intro, Big Ben, which is way more interesting than it has any right to be. There's also the Sons of Elton Haven Brown, which is like this uh, whole urban local legend put to music, and it's really long. And then there's also the track that Denny would play around with during the London Town Sessions in 77, which is called Find A Way Somehow. Now, I was going to be cheeky and play the Wings version, but no, let's let's stay true to the, to the, to the format. This is solo Denny's version of Find A Way Somehow. If I could get 
completing the Wings Denny Wings sandwich, we have an album that now is, ironically, even more closely tied to Denny Lane than ever. Of course, that album was banned on the run. This is the album that took Wings out of the minor leagues and straight to the top, where the air is fresh and clean. It is considered to be not only the best Wings album, but also one of the greatest McCartney albums in general, and also one of the greatest rock and roll albums in general. You know the story by now. Paul wants to go to Lagos to record the next album, and both drummer Denny Sywell and lead guitarist Henry McCullough were not up for that at all. You know, the band were at a low ebb. Everyone felt like they weren't being reimbursed for their services all that fairly. And on top of that, they did not feel like trading in the middle of nowhere in Scotland for what they likely saw as the middle of nowhere in Africa. Denny explains it as thus... Paul was signed to EMI. He picked somewhere on the map where they had a studio. And of course, we all loved that music. They weren't up to date exactly with the equipment, but we didn't need it. We got more out of just being there and being influenced by all of that music. 
which was fantastic. Ginger Baker being there was great for me too, because I felt more at home because I had a friend in town. We did go over to Ginger's one day just as a courtesy. He introduced us to everyone. Ginger put some sounds on the session, if you like. He actually played on a fire bucket full of gravel for a shaker sound. I think that was for Mamunia. But yeah, the point was, unlike the other two members of the band, Denny was actually very excited about this new recording locale and this new music for him to be influenced by. You know, he went to Spain to learn flamenco. He likes the blues. He likes reggae, folk music, all of that. And so it totally makes sense that he understood the game plan in a way that his compatriots did not. Denny continues, We were all into ethnic music, whether reggae or African or whatever. We sat around and looked at the map where all the EMI studios were and picked that one. That sounds like it could be a lot of fun. Also, I think it might have been the only location available for when we wanted to go. I never had any negative feelings about going. I thought it was a nice change. There was a great energy there, though we didn't know it would be monsoon season. Very much in the same way that Paul demonstrated faith in and showed respect to Denny at the start of their Wings career by at least considering to consider him a semi-equal in the band, Denny here in kind has showed immense loyalty to Paul. It was this move that not only showed that Denny was loyal and reliable, but also this demonstrated to Paul that Denny truly trusted in his own judgment too, as well as finalising the idea that they really were somewhat kindred spirits musically. This period also fully cemented the idea of the Core Wings trio, both in terms of the band's harmonies as well as their dynamic. You know, not only was Denny more physically involved in the sessions, recording backing tracks, playing more and more instruments because people weren't there to play them, and even according to some sources, writing a lot of the album, but it also meant that Denny got to spend a lot of personal one-on-one -on -one time with Paul and finalise their bond. You know, from this point onwards, Denny is officially the number two, the capo, and the only other true wing that isn't called McCartney. Anyway, before I get distracted, just going back to something I said earlier, why is Band on the Run even more linked to Denny these days? Well, in a twist of fate, he actually passed away on the 50th anniversary of the US release of Band on the Run, which is also the day after the 50th anniversary half-speed remaster version of the album was announced. But, don't worry folks, it's not like Denny spent the next 50 years in ignorance as to how good of an album Band on the Run was and how much it meant to us. He says, I know why Band on the Run was appreciated so much, because it had a certain feel. It was basically just me and Paul doing the backing tracks, and it was a more relaxed approach to doing an album than if you're going in with a band and there are all these parts. We were thrown into that as a last resort because two of the guys never came to Lagos. Clearly, the closeness of working, some might say nose-to-nose -nose <coughs> with Paul, left a lasting impression on Denny. I mean, it might have entirely been down to circumstances and outside factors, rather than Paul actively going out of his way to do an album like this with Denny specifically. But still, this kind of intimacy and true collaborative spirit is a rarity in the McCartney canon, and yet somehow a plucky little brummy managed to make music with Paul in a way that very few others can ever say they have. 
I mean, this is just one of many points that actually makes me feel that emotion of pride. I think it's really cool. Denny details the sessions a little more here, saying, Normally me and him would get together somewhere and write. Before we go into the studio, he'd come up with an idea, or I would, and then it would be a co-written thing. Or he would have written the songs and I would have to know them before we got into the studio because we'd rehearse them together. That's what I really enjoyed about Band on the Run, the fact that we were thrown into the deep end and we had to swim. And we came up with that feeling that we'd always had anyway. Now, there is a large part of me that is immeasurably happy that Denny basically got to be Paul's quote-unquote equal for a few months, and that must have given him a tremendous sense of accomplishment and validation. However, there is another part of me worries that this straight-up was something that never really happened again, and could also have been an unignorable disappointment to him that this kind of equal relationship didn't carry on further. Like, we're going to see something similar on London Town, but that might just be a case of Denny being more appropriately and accurately credited for his work. Again, some people say that Denny should get songwriting credits on even the title track of Band on the Run. But again, that's not why we're here today. Moving on to more positive things. On the bright side, the album would indeed net Denny his second Grammy Award nomination and his first ever win. This time for Best Pop Vocal Performance by a Duo, Group or Chorus. And yeah, I know awards mean nothing and Denny probably would have preferred a cash lump sum. <laughs> but it still would have been another incredibly pivotal moment of self-worth in his career by being honoured by his peers. And the fact that he's being awarded for the album in which he and Paul were working on closest must also have meant a lot to him. And now, folks, after all of that, it is now time for us to highlight the main Denny Lane contribution on Band on the Run. The romantic rocker, no words. Of course, we only ever normally get to hear the end of this song on this podcast, as it has been the outro for every episode since the very start. So now, possibly for the very first time on this show, let's listen to No Words in Full. Play us in, Denny. Yo! 
Damn, that is a belter, isn't it? No wonder I chose it. Then, very much like 1972, we have another year, 1974, where we basically just have another couple of singles and some recording sessions, none of which bore any Denny Lane original content. However, one of these sessions is worthy of note, as it was, for all intents and purposes, a Wings album, though it did not bear that name. Yes, there is no other album we can be talking about other than McGear, the debut album of Paul's brother Mike McGear, and on this album, Denny contributed backing vocals and guitars to the majority of tracks. Of course, this is mostly just another footnote in most people's write-ups of Denny, but it is another example of Denny doing Paul a massive personal favour. Like, was Denny going to get paid double that week for doing another album? Probably not. Probably just still on his retainer. He didn't have to do it. But Denny's a stand-up guy, and he did anyway. Also, it works out for Denny in the long run, because I'm sure Paul probably mentioned the Mary Hopkin thing from time to time, and this certainly would have wiped the slate clean in regards to that. Then we hurtle towards 1975 with the release of Venus and Mars. And one of the only negative things about this album is the fact that it replaced Denny's solo writing spot with a Jimmy McCullough one, with Jimmy's own medicine jar. However, as Denny frequently mentions in interviews, if Denny didn't have a song for those sessions, then Paul would gladly write one for him. Now, going back to that, those were the days incident. As we know, Paul does like to write songs to order for other people, even if they didn't order them. So, you know, Paul's like, well, I want Denny to have a song on this big tour that I'm gearing up the band for. So I'm going to make sure he has a song to sing. And that, of course, was Spirits of Ancient Egypt. Now, I'm not going to play this song now. We've just heard one and there's another song I'm going to play in a second. So... If you stick around to the end of the show, folks, the hidden track will indeed be Spirits of Ancient Egypt. Now, despite this being one of the most unique sessions in all of the Wings recording history, whenever Denny talks about this time, he mostly just talks about the rap party, like after they've done all the sessions on this big New Orleans steamer boat, where the photographer ends up taking loads of great snaps of the band, only to have his film stolen. Of course, as with all musicians, this is par for the course, as why would they remember things like detailed songwriting memories and anecdotes when they can remember a party? Though what we don't need to remember is just how talented Denny Lane is as a musician. And just in case I haven't reinforced that enough at this point, I just want to point out, in addition to his usual guitar, bass and piano duties, Denny Lane also plays the Moog and Sitar on Venus and Mars, Handbells on Rock Show, Congas on Medicine Jar, and the Bongos on Listen to What the Man Said. Though I wasn't being totally honest when I said that Denny didn't have any songs to contribute to the Venus and Mars sessions. It's just that his song really didn't fit that album, as it was born during the Nashville sessions. This song was called Send Me The Heart. It was a, an absolutely killer country track. But unfortunately, as is the case so often, Paul was also writing a country song at the same time. 
and he chose that to be the B-side for Junior's Farm instead. However, we are not here to talk about Sally G, so let's hear Denny's own country classic, Send Me the Heart. I'm sure I've said this before on an old Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode, but 
as far as I'm concerned, that is a far superior country track than Sally G. I mean, Denny's superior proficiency... I mean, Denny's clearly superior proficiency with the country music style is evident from start to finish. And the only reason I can see Paul choosing Sally G over it is because he considers it to be a little catchier and melodic. Mm, That might be true, but Denny actually does a proper country song. Anyway, let's not get bogged down because Venus and Mars was just the precursor for arguably one of the biggest years, biggest events of Denny's life, which of course was the Wings Over the World Tour. This tour would see Wings back on the road with a mahoosive set of new dates, so many in fact that the tour was going to be broken down into three separate legs. The first leg of the tour started in the UK on the 9th of September in Southampton Way and the band kept working their way through another 12 UK gigs. Then, after a break in October, they went over to Australia where they did another nine shows. During this time, Denny had a bit of a shake-up in terms of what he was performing. From his original lineup, he only had Go Now, so we don't have Say Don't Mind or I Would Only Smile or anything like that. And instead, they have been replaced with Spirits of Ancient Egypt and a lead vocal on Richard Corey, the cover of the Simon and Garfunkel classic that we heard earlier. The thing is, though, and you can see this on Rock Show, and you can hear it on the Wings Over America album, I mean, you can hear it on every live Wings show, but Denny is playing way more of a vital role than you would ever consider. His presence on songs like Picasso's Last Words and My Love and soon-to-be Let Em In is unignorable. His voice is there. You can hear him proudly. It's such a unique harmony with Paul. And you can tell he is loving every minute of these big-ass shows. Then there was a break until the spring of 1976. And obviously there is no downtime for Wings. And so they got back together to do the one thing you always want to do on your holidays which is to make an album. The album being Wings at the Speed of Sound. Now, the thing about this album, the gimmick if you will, was that every member was definitely going to get a lead vocal. And not just because it's a double album either, which even if Denny didn't write a song, would mean that he was guaranteed a lead vocal anyway that Paul would write for him. But rather fortuitously, perhaps inspired and spurned on by the first leg of the tour, Denny actually did have a composition of his own to contribute and actually got two lead vocals. But we're not going to cover the song that Denny wrote himself just yet, as I want to play that clip a little further down the line. And so right now, let's focus on the song that Paul wrote for Denny instead. Of course, we know that Paul is more than capable of writing songs for Ringo, and so let's see what Paul does with Denny here. This is The Note You Never Wrote.
A bottle floated out to sea After days when it had found the perfect spot It opened up And I read the When recollecting this song, Danny said, The note you never wrote is not my song, it's Paul's. I just sang it. He wrote it with me in mind. If you think about it, it's the same tempo as Go Now, a 3-4. 
He was a big fan of Go Now and the Moody Blues. When we were on tour with the Beatles, he was always at the side of the stage watching us, taking notes or whatever. He loved Go Now. He liked us because we had our own sound. He was always trying to get us to do certain songs. Now, in my own cynical mind, that quote almost inspires me to draw the conclusion that Paul was almost trying to write a direct replacement for Go Now. So, like, maybe they would be able to consolidate the wing sound and not have Denny do some of his solo stuff. Or that, maybe even worse, Paul doesn't think that Denny can sing a song outside of the sound of Go Now. And so maybe Paul perceives Denny's uh, range to be more limited than it is. I don't know. Maybe the only reason I'm coming to these conclusions is because I consider The Note You Never Wrote to be a real low point of the Wings' career. Like, like it's a vibe, and it's a, you know it's got a, a unique atmosphere, definitely. But I don't think it does anything other than highlight how awesome Denny sounds when he writes his own material in his own style. But yeah, with that, everyone, we can now cover one of Denny's best songs, Time to Hide, which is a song that truly does live up to the Denny Lane potential that he brought to the band from the very start. I mean, it isn't a string arrangement thing, but it's still a badass, effective, and deceptively intricate tune. This time, Denny is more obviously drawing on his blues roots here, and what we get is a killer, memorable rocker on an album that is sorely lacking in those two things. Obviously, except for Beware My Love. But yeah, as Denny points out here, Paul was usually involved in his songs in one way or another, and it also implies that the same goes for Denny being more involved in some of Paul's songs than we think. Denny says, It was my song, and the fact that Paul wanted to record it was a compliment. His contribution was helping with the arrangement. Mine was more the arrangement of the verses and choruses. Then we'd go to the half-tempo thing in the middle, and then that was to show off some of the harmonies. Wings was a great harmony band. Yes, they were, Denny. Yes, they were. And... Now that we are coming on to the second leg of the Wings Over the World Tour, which also includes Wings Over America, it is now time for us to hear a live version of Time to Hide. Let's go, Danny.
again, in case anyone's confused, that wasn't the album version, but the live version taken from the Titanic triple album, that is Wings Over America, the album that was recorded during the Wings Over the World tour. And yeah, we are at the point in the story now where we just happen to be picking up the second major leg of said tour in the March of 76. It began with five cursory gesture performances in Europe, two in Denmark, one in the Netherlands, one in France, and one in what was then Western Germany. Then, after a quick break in April, the tour then kicked up a gear as they moved on over to the far more extensive and most famous portion of all, Wings Over America. This was clearly the big time that Denny had been seeking his whole life, with this tour being one of the biggest and most financially successful tours ever. The crowds were regularly in the 10 to 30,000 people range, with a total of over 600,000 Wings fans seeing them between the 3rd of May and the 23rd of June. The scale of this tour was clearly the big takeaway for Denny when he recollects. Also, you've got to remember, to the Moody's, theatres were the biggest venues we ever did. The Beatles only ever did a few stadium things in the early days, but for Wings, it was all stadiums. It started out in a small way to get the band good. You know, we did the university tour purely as a form of practice in front of an audience without too much exposure and without too much attention put on us. But after that, it was all steep. But after that, it was stadiums all the way. Big arenas. Big. He also continues in another interview. The minute we started doing arenas, it was amazing. We proved to the world we could get up there at that level. That was the best thing in the world. And with those quotes there, I think that's the first time Denny's ever been compared to the Beatles in a favourable way. I mean, he's actually outpacing them at this point. So a comment like that is not without merit. Objectively, he was the number two in the biggest touring act of 1976. And being that he is someone who liked to tour, this must have meant he spent the majority of late 75 to mid 76 with the biggest smile on his brummy face. Of course, the big difference since the last stretch of the tour was the release of Wings at the Speed of Sound. And because of that, Denny now got another opportunity to sing. Yes, there was another lead vocal added to the set list, aka the one we just heard. The addition of Time to Hide meant that he now had a total of five lead vocals, two of which were written by himself. Now, I know this is spread across three albums and six sides, but it's still a hell of a lot of Denny. And along with his already increased presence on stage during that tour, I think it can be finally safe to say that even the outside world was starting to take note and realise that whilst Wings is mainly Paul, it is not entirely Paul, along with Jimmy's solo track as well. Then, from late June to the middle of September, Denny would once again find himself with some free time and the urge to record. However, it was far too soon to do another Wings album, so it looked like the perfect time to work on his solo career. However, there isn't much evidence that Denny even had enough backup material to fill an album at this point, so he would need to find songs from another source. Well, fortunately enough, his bestest buddy in the world, Paul McCartney, recently acquired the rights to the Buddy Holly discography. And that is the publishing rights, I should just point out there, because publishing rights versus songwriting rights is definitely going to come up later in this story. But anyway, 
With Paul and Denny being the Buddy Holly nerds that they are, what with them doing the Buddy Holly tribute night every year together, meant that they were both more than happy to spend the next month turning the next Denny Lane solo album into a Denny Lane Buddy Holly covers album. This resulted in Denny's second solo release, Holly Days. Again, we've covered this album on the show before with good friend of the show Andrew Brooks, whom you'll be hearing from again very soon in a future episode. Of course, go and check out that episode if you haven't already. But yeah, the main thing to remember about Holly Days, besides the fact that it's fucking awesome, is the fact that it is an album produced by Paul McCartney, with Paul McCartney doing all of the backing tracks, most of the backing tracks, most of the instrumentation, and it's a, an album with Paul, Linda, and Denny harmonies. So it's basically a Wings album in the way that the McGear album is. It is a true spiritual successor to Band on the Run. You know, it's rudimentary. It's got Paul and Denny working nose to nose. It's got that rustic charm. And nowhere else are you going to get that kind of kooky slapdash creativity, intimacy, and killer Wings trio vocals. And yet, despite all of that, no one ever talks about this album. Honestly, everyone, if you're going to listen to one album in remembrance of Denny Lane, please go back and check out Holidays, because it might just be one of the greatest cover albums of all time. And so, to close out this section, let's have a quick listen to the opening track from that album. We've already heard two of them at the start of the episode, but I couldn't resist. Here's Buddy Holly's Heartbeat. <laughs> Thank you. 
And then, after recording another album, Genny was once again to go out on tour with his Wings bandmates to finish off the last few dates of the Wings Over the World tour. This one was more about wrapping things up more than anything, with a show in Austria, Yugoslavia, Italy, and a return gig in West Germany, though this time Munich rather than Berlin, and concluding with three shows in London to bring it all back round full circle. I am sure there are many killer Denny-based anecdotes from this time, but they've not been recorded in any print I've ever seen. So again, if you have any stories about Denny, no matter how trivial or seemingly dull, from any period that we've talked about here today, drop me an email at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. Now, at this point, folks, we have to bring things to a complete standstill. Why? UK tax law. Why are we talking about this? Well, despite the fact that Denny should have been on a high at this point, you know, being the biggest touring act in the world at this time, it did have some real-life, very dull, very bureaucratic consequences. At the time, here in the UK, your income tax a.k.a. the tax you pay based on your earnings for the total year was based on the previous year. So, in a sense, in 1977, Denny would literally be paying for 1976. So, he had been gifted with an immense amount of income in 1976, but an immense amount of tax in 1977. We all know what George Harrison was singing about on Revolver now, don't we? So, he's going to be taxed based on those incredibly profitable few months in America, which is fine, I guess, but then that would require a steady stream of income to offset that. You know, we don't want Denny to be left with nothing after all that work, do we? And unfortunately, Wings were not a steady, reliable stream of income for Denny. Now, I do, on this podcast, want to address in some form, the whole Denny Lane financial question. You know, was it Denny's fault, or did Paul not pay him properly, or did Paul screw him out of some money? What's going on? And a lot of people have a lot of opinions on this, though, unfortunately, I do want to point out that it is a very subjective issue, based on how you look at money, or friends, or even law. And I also want to point out that I don't want to get too involved here because it's going to upset someone somewhere though if I was going to mention something like that I probably would suggest that Paul coulda woulda shoulda have increased Denny's weekly retainer or maybe given him a complimentary 0.5% share on album sales receipts now that would mean Denny would be a lot more secure he'd be getting a lot more of a steady stream of income, and he would be able to live a slightly more extravagant life, you know, one that would befit the big time that he's been experiencing. But that's not the case. And I think doing that would also be an admission that it's not just the Paul McCartney band. Wait, but doesn't Paul want it to not appear like just the Paul McCartney band? Well, he does on the surface level, folks, but In terms of the business angle, it was only ever the Paul McCartney show. Hmm, it's a bit suspicious, isn't it? Like, yeah, Denny's getting a few co-writing credits here, but it's the publishing where the money is made. Remember the whole Michael Jackson incident? Yes, folks, it's publishing where it's at. And with an album like Holidays, 
Paul was set to make more money off that than Denny ever was. So there's some context. Conversely, I don't just want to demonise Paul. We know what the 70s were like and how people were in that year. It was all about spending and extravagance and whether that was on houses or cars that we do know Denny bought. You know, we, we know he bought a 30 grand house very early in Wing's career. And we know that drugs were being taken, despite the fact that Denny said he never did drugs, but Jojo said he did. You know, We don't know the real nitty-gritty of a lot of this, folks. But we do know that Denny wasn't exactly the most thrifty guy or the best businessman. And so it is hard to be that objective. However, Uno card, conversely, conversely, I do want to point out that it would not be the easiest thing for Denny to be exactly miserly whilst being the number two in one of the biggest bands in the world, you know, the number two to one of the Beatles. Like, if you're around Mr. Moneybags McCartney all the time, two things are going to happen. Number one, you're either going to want to end up keeping up with the Joneses to some degree. Like, you don't want to keep going round to Paul's fancy mansion and then asking Paul to come back to your little apartment just because you don't know when the next paycheck is coming. You know, you do want to present a certain air of success, that success that Denny has, as we know, been after for decades now. But also, and I think this could be more likely... If you're around Paul and wealth and all of Paul's wealthy friends and all of your wealthy friends all the time, I think it's quite easy to get a warped sense of money and to be a little lackadaisical about it. I think that's the best way to put it. Anyway, the point is these money issues were going to mount for Denny over the next few years, especially considering the fact that you know there was going to be no more touring and we were going to now be mostly focusing on albums partly due to because of Linda's pregnancy. But anyway, before we get too bogged down in that, let's move right into 1977. And after the Titanic Wings Over the World Tour came the Titanic Wings Over the World Tour album, aka Wings Over America. Not too much to say about this one that we haven't already covered already. Go and check out the Wings Over America episode that I did with Paul Sally back in the day. Yada, yada, yada. But the important thing is, is that Denny has a songwriting credit on this Mahusive album, so I'm hoping he would have gotten at least a little bit of cash for this one. But that wasn't going to be his earner that year. No, no, the real cash cow for Mr Lane was going to be something I bet even he didn't see coming. Of course, at this time, he is part of the hottest stadium act in the world, and he's had three number one albums behind him. And yet, that really doesn't factor into what will be his greatest collaboration with Paul. You know, they weren't really setting out to write another hit or anything like that. I'm guessing Denny was going through some of Paul's old tapes or Paul was playing something for him on the piano one day. And Denny said, hey, that's a pretty good song. And the rest is history. Yes, folks, rather serendipitously, our Denny Lane would end up as the co-writer for the biggest single in UK history at that time, as well as one of the biggest singles of that year worldwide, except for America, which can only mean it's now time to talk about Mole of Kintyre. Mole of Kintyre 
I'm not afraid. 
So yeah, we all know the story, you know, the one that sees Denny and Paul sharing a bottle of scotch and writing this hit song. And I always assumed that this was Denny somewhat over-embellishing his involvement in the song, you know, because I'd heard the 1974 piano tape and I was thinking, oh, well, Paul basically had the whole song ready to go. But upon going back to it for this episode, it is clear that he only really had the chorus and some ideas about the verses. And Denny really did come in and finish it off borderline 50-50 style, you know, with Paul doing the chorus and Denny doing the words. Maybe it's more 55-45 or 60-40 split, but Denny really is involved in this song. And it turns out the kind of myth that I'd purported to myself that Denny was over-embellishing his involvement is totally incorrect also. I mean, here's Denny talking about it now. He says, well, I co-wrote that one. I did write that with Paul, although I still consider it to be his song because he came up with the chorus. When I heard the chorus, I said, that's a hit song. So the next day we went out and wrote the rest of it. Now, of course, this reminds me of Red Rose Speedway and Denny encouraging Paul to finish off, get on the right thing. So it's clear that Paul trusts that Denny has an ear for this kind of thing. And it's so wonderful to see these two working nose to nose in this way again I mean it's almost quite Beatlesque in some sense you know in the sense that Paul does the chorus Denny does the verses and then you have the third element of the magic which is the Campbelltown pipe band and how they couldn't record it in the original key because of the limitations of the bagpipes and so they had to change the key again you know it's a song that beats she loves you with a Beatles level story behind it which I love but what I love even more, you know, regardless of who wrote it, the fact of the matter is, is that Mull of Kintyre was the highest selling single in the UK and it was co-written by a Brummie. Yes, the second city strikes again. And this is as close to a point of pride that I'll ever feel based on the achievements of another person who just so happened to be born near me. And I'm, I'm so glad it's Denny. But before I get too sentimental, we're going to press on and talk about London Town, Wings' 1978 album release that was, of course, recorded in 1977 on the high seas. Now, typically, a new Wings album doesn't mean that much in the way of new Denny Lane material, but London Town bucks that trend entirely. And I don't think I mentioned this on the original London Town episode. I possibly skipped over it because it was it was news to me when I came to do this episode. But this album is the magnum opus of the Paul McCartney-Denny Lane writing partnership. Not only do we have two songs where Denny is singing a lead vocal, which is fantastic, but most importantly, he has a co-writer credit on a grand total of five of them. That includes the title track, Don't Let It Bring You Down, Morse Moose and the Grey Goose, as well as his two lead tracks, Children, Children and Deliver Your Children. This means that along with Mullock and Tyre, Denny had contributed to the writing of nearly half of the material Wings put out during the Water Wings slash London Town sessions. Now, yes, it would have been nice if maybe Children, Children and Deliver Your Children were solo credits, 
and in a kind of Mandela effect way, I kind of thought they were, but you know, you can't have everything. And it's still pretty insane that they are working this close. I didn't know it was like this. I thought that London Town was kind of like the, the, the beginning of the end, but it seems like it was a misfire with unfortunate consequences. Like, we're, we're going to see with Back to the Egg that Denny only has one track on that and no co-write, so maybe Paul thought, oh, maybe there's too much Denny on London Town. Who knows? But still, the point is, you know, we all think of Band on the Run as Denny and Paul working nose to nose, but the fact of the matter is, it is London Town where they are at their closest. They have been through fire and hell together they've recently recorded a solo buddy holly album together they've done a tour around the world together paul has written songs for denny they couldn't be closer they couldn't be more in sync with each other and it has rather wonderfully resulted in one of the most diverse and experimental and sonically unique wings albums in their entire discography like, we all know that Back to the Egg's going to have a hard pivot in a different direction, but I don't think there's any Wings fan out there that would have decried another album in this style or going down this particular path. Anyway, let's celebrate this wonderfully collaborative period in Wings history and listen to one of Denny's lead vocals. Of course, it was never going to be Children Children, so this is Deliver Your Children. Amen. 
Before we leave 1978, we should also point out that this is the year that Denny and Jojo tied the knot and got married. Woohoo! Apparently all of the acrimony between Jojo and the McCartneys had subsided by this point, and Jojo herself, talking about bringing up the kids during this time, called this particular period in her life within the band to be idyllic. Sadly though, this sadness was short-lived, as also in 1978, Jojo's mentally unstable brother shot their father in Florida. This meant that Jojo had to go over and spend time with her ailing father, spending longer and longer apart from Denny, to the extent that Denny claimed they would have basically different lives at this point. Also, Jojo's substance habits started to spiral out of control, and more likely than not, Denny started having affairs. But we're not going to get bogged down in that either, as we're going to move forward to the June of 1979, where we have the final official Wings studio album, Back to the Egg. Of course, the most significant Denny Lane contribution to these album sessions was the fact that it was essentially he, not Paul, that found and hired young Lawrence Juber and Steve Holly to fill out the rest of the band. So, if you, like many people out there, think that the lineup of Wings is, or could have been, the best lineup that they'd ever had, especially if they'd had more than one album, then you can thank Denny Lane for that. Anyway, Denny accompanies the band to Limpen Castle for the majority of these sessions, which must have seemed like a bit of a step down from Lagos, Nashville, and the Ocean, but still, he was active in the sessions, especially with the prospect of a potential new tour on the horizon. Now, whilst Denny's solitary song on the Back to the Egg final album track listing was a little lacklustre as far as I'm concerned, it didn't mean that he wasn't still writing killer material at this time. I mean, as we all know, 
Paul and to some extent his bandmates are pretty bad judges of their own material. And so, in a rather dunderheaded move, Denny's far superior composition, Weep for Love, was left on the cutting room floor. Let's hear it.
Now, whilst Deddy does appear on every song on this album with backing vocals, acoustic guitars and electric guitars, there is a certain lack of variety in his position with the band, though this is rather similar to, say, Wildlife, where you, you can tell the band are kind of just working things out. And so we don't have much in the way of unique Denny Lane instrumental moments on this album. All we have are the fact that he plays the bass on We're Open Tonight, obviously because Paul's on guitar, but he does play the piano on Baby's Request, which I think is a wonderful little touch. No one would have guessed that. I never guessed that. So if you love the piano on that track, again, down to Denny. Also on this album, we have the, the, the Rockestra theme, which was performed with the Rockestra band. And even though I think it's the worst thing on the album, it did secure Denny Lane his third Grammy Award nomination and his second Grammy Award win. The Rockestra won the Grammy for Best Individual Rock Performance, and I can't believe I'm saying that, but still, well done to Denny. Of course, Back to the Egg was swiftly followed up by another tour, something that Denny would have been more than glad to do at this point. This was the 1979 Wings UK tour, and originally this was going to be just a leg of what was meant to be a world tour. More on that later. This UK portion, though, featured 19 performances at 11 venues, including four nights of sold-out, 10,000-plus-sized crowds at Wembley Arena. On this tour... Denny not only played his new composition again and again and again, along with the standard inclusion of Go Now, but in a very unexpected turn, we also got a third Denny Lane lead vocal in the form of No Words. Now, sadly, the version of No Words from this tour ain't the best, and so we're going to do what we did with Speed of Sound and play a song from the last album that we've just covered, but live. This is Again and Again and Again.
Thanks a lot. Then we come to one of the major turning points in the Wings narrative, which is the 1980 Wings tour of Japan. Now, picture it, folks. You are Denny Lane. You are starting to notice that you are close to running low on funds, even after a tour of the UK and after Mullifkin Tyre. And so, a mid-level tour of a very lucrative market like Japan would have been a massive earner for our Denny. As he puts it here, touring was a, a source of income that was relied on far more than certain other band members, who were also technically the boss too. He recalls, You can't make money in the music business unless you play live now. Back then, we didn't have any money because management had it all. We didn't know where it went, and we didn't have any. Look at all the bands that broke up too. The worst case of all is Badfinger. It affected all those bands that broke up and committed suicide. All sorts of things happen because people didn't see the money. On the 16th of January 1980, Paul was arrested for possession of 219 grams of cannabis at Tokyo's Narita airport. As a result, he was jailed for 10 days, which not only put a kibosh on the shows in Japan, but on the whole Wings tour in general. Whilst nothing was set in stone, there were very strongly pointed rumours of possible European and American legs of this tour also. And so, for all of this to come crashing down represented a major financial blow for Denny. He recalls the situation in the heavily biased and oft-criticised Blackbird by former guest of the podcast, Jeffrey Giuliano. Denny says, I would have probably made 50 grand on that tour, not to mention the times we could have gone back. We were breaking new ground. We needed those Japanese tours to continue. I had the sense to know that without new markets, the band would not survive. Paul felt very sorry for himself when he came out of prison, but he didn't seem to understand he'd upset a lot of people. He and Linda knew the importance of not going to Japan carrying dope. The penalties are heavier there than anywhere else in the world, and we already had been refused entry before because of drug offences five years earlier. Then the quote starts to go a little off the rails, but this is a quote taken from when Denny was apparently living with Giuliano himself, Giuliano is known for pursuing more salacious stories than most, and so I can see how he may have been able to cajole Denny into saying the following. I think that he and Linda thought that if they could smuggle some grass through, that it would have been a one-up for them. The McCartneys are a couple that has everything, and that can get boring. What they crave now is excitement. I personally think that they did it for the thrill. Of course, Paul bought himself out of jail the way he buys himself out of everything. And, as long as he's got the money in his pockets, he always will. Of course, I do expect some salty bitterness from Denny when it comes to this part of McCartney history, and who could blame him? This was clearly a big old blow to him both financially and emotionally, and so who am I to judge him for not quote-unquote getting over it? Like, let's not make any mistakes here, folks. Denny is in desperate need for that cash. And now, the person who hasn't already been paying him enough over the years is now the man who's basically going to make him broke. Denny feels trapped, folks, and so everything that happens from this point onwards is a result of that. Denny likely has a sense of pride and probably doesn't want to tell Paul how bad things are. He likely resents Paul's wealth and resents the fact that Paul already hasn't bailed him out. 
And so we should expect increasingly high levels of bitchiness, dissidence and disloyalty amongst the McCartney ranks moving forward. However, despite the obvious acrimony that this event caused, it did not result in the band immediately breaking up. And instead, Denny went back to do what he's always best at doing, his own thing. After the cancellation of the aforementioned potentially lucrative Japanese tour, Denny got his travel fix by joining Jojo on a promotional tour for her first album. It was whilst on this tour he also wrote a new song about a Japanese fan being upset over the cancelled Wings tour. This song was called Japanese Tears and it resulted in Denny getting the itch to record again. The song sounded something like this.
So, Denny Lane and Wings drummer Steve Holly only ever intended on getting together to record that one song, but they ended up getting yet another little sideband together to record a more complete album. This album would go on to be called Japanese Tears. So, in addition to Jojo and Steve Holly, Denny's new band lineup boasted Gordon Seller on bass, who was a former member of Beggar's Opera and the Alex Harvey band. You had Andy Richards on keyboards, who would go on to play keys on the Relax and Two Tribes tracks by Frankie Goes to Hollywood, Careless Whispers by George Michael and It's a Sin by the Pet Shop Boys. And you also had Mike Piggott, who is a very accomplished guitarist, as well as being described as one of the best jazz violists of his generation. Now, with a lineup like that, I mean, all those big names, how could this album not have been a hit? Well, unfortunately, like Arlene, it is played with production issues, but it is actually still worth picking up. Because, well, the best way to describe it is that, like with what George Harrison did on All Things Must Pass, Denny had to use a lot of the songs that he wasn't able to use with with his last band, and so put them on this new solo album. Rather crucially, if you are a Wings completionist, the original tapes and mixes for I Would Only Smile, Send Me the Heart, and Weep for Love are included on this album. Additionally, you get brand new versions of Go Now and Say You Don't Mind. However, it's not like Denny was absconding with the tapes, in kind of a give my regards to Broad Street style or anything, with him recalling, I had some songs from Wings which weren't used, but I had permission to use them, which is neither here nor there. Clearly, Denny doesn't seem to extend much goodwill to that fact, with him clearly seeing them as his songs to begin with, which is fair enough, they are. Though I would point out that if Denny was sore about, you know, having to get permission to use these songs. He certainly wasn't sore about using Paul, Linda and Wings' names to sell his compilation albums that featured these recordings in the future. Also, speaking of Wings' names, a lot of other people's names are put on the covers of said compilation albums as well, because not only do you have Steve Holly and Lawrence Juba on this record, but you also have earlier versions of Wings with Denny Sywell and Henry McCullough. And then you also have Howie Casey and Thaddeus Richards appearing on different tracks on this album as well. So again, like McGear, it is as close to another Wings album as you really can get. Again, go and check out the episode that I did about Japanese Tears with Chloe Costello on this album. The long and short of it is, it's not the, the best produced thing in the world. It is a bit scattershot. But it's still another fantastic example of Denny's songwriting chops, range and performance skills. Now, with the release of Japanese Tears in the December of 1980, it meant that both Paul and Denny had put out solo material with no new Wings output to speak of whatsoever. Of course, this is the awkward limbo period of Wings, the period where they haven't broken up, but they are not active. And now Paul is actively working on another solo album, or at least an album that's not a Wings project. Of course, this album would be Tug of War. And one of the things that you don't really know early into your Wings fandom, into your Paul McCartney fandom, is that 
Denny Lane is all over this album. He was there for the majority of the sessions and he pops up on so many tracks. He plays electric guitar on the title track, Tug of War and Ballroom Dancing. He plays both electric guitar and synths on Somebody Who Cares and Dress Me Up as a Robber. He plays the acoustic guitar on The Pound is Sinking. He plays bass on Wanderlust. Of course, it's also rumoured that the backing track for I'll Give You a Ring was written during the McGear sessions, and so he's probably on that. And finally, not only did he perform backing vocals on Rain Clowns, but he also shares a songwriting credit on that song. Yep, that's another fact that I did not know before I did this episode. How many of you out there knew that Danny Lane co-wrote that song? That meant that Denny would have had a share in some of the royalties of one of the biggest singles of 1982, Ebony and Ivory, of which Rain Clouds was the B-side. Or at least he would have for a few months, I guess, but more on that in a second. Also, it turns out that early pressings of Rain Clouds actually neglect to include Denny as a writer on the track. Say what you like about that, I don't know. Maybe it's writing on the wall for future events. Uh, legacy listeners, go out there and check out your single copies. I know I did, just to be sure. But yeah, I feel like it's been far too long since we've wasted more time with another song. And so let's take a quick listen to the very last Paul and Denny official co-write. This is Rain Clouds.
And speaking of rain clouds, literal, figurative and metaphorical, Denny was actually there with Paul at Air Studios in Oxford Circus the day that everyone found out that John Lennon was shot, aka the day before. Now, I know I mentioned this whole next quote in a recent Hot Hits and Cold Cuts episode where we cover the whole thing, but I thought it would be worth going over again as it is pretty darn important. Denny recalls that day as thus. The strange thing that happened was, I went into work sort of knowing. I sort of knew that Paul would come into work anyway, because the best way to deal with anything is to keep working, to take your mind off it as much as possible, to be around your friends. And although I expected a call to say that Paul won't be coming into work today, I knew in the back of my mind that he probably would be there, maybe later, whatever. But anyway, he was driving up from Sussex and he turned up. And as usual, you know, noon, we were sitting there and he went, I don't believe it. He was obviously physically shaken. He didn't know what to say, really. He didn't know how to say things. We were looking out the window, you know, air studios, like six floors up in Oxford Circus, looking right down into the middle of London. And down at the bottom, a truck went by, a dark green truck went by, and it said, Lennon Furnishing, or something like that. It had Lennon something. And I went, oh, look at that. And then he started to talk. He said, look, I'll tell you something. I'm never going to fall out with anybody again in my life for that amount of time and have the possibility of somebody dying before I get the chance to square it with them. What a prescient thing to say to a man you are basically just about to fall out with. And indeed, we are about to go through the Denny and Paul breakup in just a second. But I do want to undercut that drama and tension entirely. We're going to sidestep it because I want to let you know that it didn't end badly. I mean, it, it could have ended better, perhaps. There could have been a reunion gig, yada, yada, yada. But despite how ironically long it took for Paul to make up with Denny, it has been both publicly stated by both Paul and Denny that they have made up, supposedly. And this is to have happened as early as the mid-2010s, with the two of them reconnecting at a UB40 gig. Now... Do either of them even hint at them hanging out all that much after or doing anything practical other than a few phone calls and Christmas cards? No. And again, they didn't get together musically ever. But just to have the state of affairs be where there's no bad blood necessarily between the two of them was something that, as a fan, I did find delightful. I'm glad that there wasn't a real sour note to the end of this story. Uh, just as a side note as well, UB40, of course, is a Birmingham-based band, and that's just another nice little example of the UK's second city in this story. Oh, and before I forget, also around this time, Paul brought Denny along to help him do the backing vocals on a George Harrison song. Yes, Denny was on George's own post-Lennon death song all those years ago. This makes Denny one of the first people to ever appear on a record with all three surviving Beatles. So, in addition to the Denny Lane Electric String Orchestra Band, this is another thing that Denny did before Jeff Lynne. Though, once Denny had completed all of these Paul-based projects, he looked ahead into the future, and he did not see touring on the table. Either Paul was going to be finishing off all of these tug-of-war songs for a new album, uh, maybe working on this new vanity project film of his, or simply raising his family. None of these 
were going to be particularly massive earners for our boy Denny, and so he finally came to the decision that he would do something that he's been tempted to do for years, something that he thinks is the right move, and something that will not only alter the Paul McCartney sound forever, but the Paul McCartney story forever. Though, this shouldn't be a surprising move. Denny has always been an independent guy. Whether it's fronting a new band every six months, or going off to live a hobo life in Spain, it was always going to be inevitable that he would get the itch just to branch out and get out from under the thumb of McCartney and MPL. Denny recalls, I did work on the last two albums, Tug of War and Pubs of Peace, but they weren't Wings albums. That's when I thought, now's the time to try and do my own thing again, which is what I did. Nobody fell out, we just weren't going to be going on the road for a while. That was it. And so, with that quote, everyone, we come to the part of the story that I like least. It's not only a rough time for Denny, but it's also when one of my all-time favourite bands breaks up. Yes, I know that, that this is an episode for and about Denny and how great he is and how impactful he was, but in the way that Paul has to unfairly bear the burden of the breakup of the Beatles, when we know it largely didn't go that way, Denny too must largely bear the burden for breaking up Wings, even though it largely didn't go down that way. The official statement of his departure came on the 27th of April 1981, with his representation being quoted in the Leader Post newspaper two days later, saying, There is no row, but Denny likes to tour, and Paul has decided that Wings will not make any tour plans for the future. This particular party line, as it were, was repeated in Club Sandwich issue number 24, 1981, one I actually happen to own. It reads, In April, Denny Lane left the band after having been a member of Wings for ten years. We are all sorry to see him go and wish him all the best in the future. At the moment, Paul has no immediate plans to tour, and Denny likes live performance, so he is hoping to tour on his own with a new band he is forming. Now, do I believe that this was totally about the lack of touring? Well, yes and no. Yes, in the sense that I know Denny did want to tour, and no, in the sense that I know that he also kind of had to tour. Sure, there were almost certainly other quirks, idiosyncrasies, annoyances and issues that come from working with Paul that would have eaten away at Denny's patience and what we call today the mental well-being of Mr. Denny Lane. And so, once again, we find ourselves at a situation where uh, I find it hard to blame our boy Denny at all. I mean, yeah, rather like the Beatles narrative, it does seem like everyone probably could have just sorted things out if they would have talked a little bit more and a bit more expressive and open. But again, we don't know the true private dynamics of how this relationship was behind closed doors. Still, over the years, there hasn't been that much to challenge this narrative. Even in this modern age, in vetted publications, Denny still somewhat toes the company line, with very positive affirmations like, We didn't fall out. I didn't think he was too pleased about the fact that I wanted to leave, but I was at the point where I thought I was frustrated, so I wanted to go out and do my own thing. But is that really how it went down? Well, in the very biased, possibly entirely bullshit book Paul McCartney Blackbird by Jeffrey Giuliano, 
once again, we find a different narrative. But I am kind of inclined to believe that these words are his as he describes the last days from the tug-of-war sessions. Denny says, supposedly, One day I was really pissed off and Paul kept calling up to say, let's go back to work. And I said to Jojo, tell him I'm not coming in today. Then it was all, if he doesn't want to come in, well, forget it. I didn't actually talk to him. I just didn't feel like carrying on. I know that if I had called, I could have carried on. I just didn't. It's as simple as that. Danny also talks about how his strained relationship with his wife, Jojo, was a contributing factor towards his decision to leave the band. He says, I was at the point where we were going through bad times as a family. She was running around and I was running around, living separate lives virtually. It was also a way of saving my marriage. Now, you're certainly not going to be reading about that in the Back to the Egg archive box set, are you? But yeah, as with all elements of the McCartney story, there is more to the story if you look a little deeper. And one such example might be, why did Paul stay so distant from Denny for all this time? Why was there no, you know, friendship reunion in, say, the early 90s or something like that? Well, if we're going to talk about that and peel back a layer, we're going to have to once again talk about Jojo Lane. And forgive me as I don't have the exact dates at hand, but it is widely purported that Jojo Lane used her newfound sense of freedom and distance from the McCartneys to go to the tabloid newspapers and sell them salacious stories, you know, all the usual crap like that there, rich assholes and potheads, but also quite deep and mean stuff about Linda and how she's got hairy legs and stuff like that, like, all very vindictive and inappropriate stuff, and very rarely does anyone in the Beatle camp, let alone the McCartney camp, tolerate any level of talking shop outside the circle of trust, and... This is where Paul would potentially take something to heart, especially with the bad-mouthing of Linda. And so, once again, we are at a situation where I am not surprised that Paul would not welcome Denny back with open arms. You know, making a quick buck off the press in spite of Paul is not only a horrible personal move, but it's a horrible business move as well. And it's like, oh, why did you have to do that? And the reason I say that is because not only Jojo did that, but Denny did too. Well, kind of. He explains here. Unfortunately, the press got a hold of some bad stuff. I was doing a book, and some of the things that I said about Paul were taken out of context. It looked like I was having a go at Paul, which I wasn't. I'm sure he wasn't too pleased about that. So, whilst Paul may have quote-unquote fired the first shot from Denny's perspective and hurt Denny first... It is clear that the perceived retaliatory move from Denny is what severed this friendship for as long as it did. Now, is it at all fair that Paul can basically do all this damage to Denny from a position of power and wealth and to have Denny be kind of cast aside for less damaging actions? Of course, it's not fair, but we don't live in a perfect world. Paul holds all the cards and if so, if Denny was to rebel against Paul, which he did, it would be at the cost of everything, which it was. It is very clear that by this point, depression, stress, marital issues and money worries got the better of Denny at this point. And rather like 
some other people who take very drastically permanent actions against their life when not in the right state of mind, shall we say. It seems that Denny leaving Wings was a permanent, quote-unquote, solution to a temporary problem. However, the problems are not over yet. All of the money problems that have been following Denny around the last half decades are finally going to catch up with him now. And he owes a very substantial, albeit undisclosed, amount to the Inland Revenue, a.k.a. the Taxman! Now, this story certainly started in about 77, after his killer post-wings over America year of revenue, but when it all came to a head, it was a little more up in the air, and so I've left it until now to discuss it properly. Now, of course, if you're friends with a multi-millionaire, then of course you're going to ask them to see if they can help you out in some way. And... Surprisingly, or unsurprisingly, depending on your point of view, Paul actually agreed to lend Denny some money in his time of need. And this is where things start to get a little fucky. But what we do know is that there was a loan. It went down and it eventually led to this rift between the two. So the general story is that Denny asked Paul for a loan of either £100,000 or £1,000,000. However, this was not just a gimme, and Paul was expecting the money back at some point. It was an actual loan. He wasn't just giving him the cash. So, as per the narrative, which again is mostly smoke and mirrors, our boy Denny had to offer some sort of collateral just in case he couldn't pay back the loan. But what of value did the supposedly near-skint post-Gypsy Denny Lane have to offer in value in lieu? Well, he did have something, folks. Half of the highest-selling single in the UK of all time at that point, a.k.a. Mother of Kintyre. Now, I'm not exactly sure what the difference is between songwriting royalties and publishing royalties is, but I know that the publisher, being the party that does all the admin, gets a much bigger piece of the pie. Now, being that the publisher was MPL, Paul's company, I imagine Denny put up his songwriting rights for the song up as insurance in the unlikely event he didn't pay the loan back in time. Now, some sources paint the picture that it was the lawyers, not Paul, who insisted on the collateral, but others claim it was just Paul. However, the fact that this was supposedly an interest-free loan does lend some credence to the idea that Paul was doing this as an act of good faith and not some sort of long-term plan to screw over Denny and win back all the rights to Mullivkin Tyre. Let's get those thoughts out of everyone's head right away. But yeah, after a certain amount of time had elapsed, likely several years, Denny had still not paid back this amount to Paul. And what with their relationship being as damaged as it now was, I'm sure Paul took little pity in claiming back the legal compensation that he was owed in blood and ink. And, once again, this is where details get a little iffy. The general notion is that Denny ended up having to give up the songwriting credits for Mull of Kintyre in his entirety. And that theory is not helped by the fact that one of the music videos for Mull of Kintyre only credits Paul. And that's how a lot of people perceive this interaction. Denny lost the rights and therefore was poor and destitute forever. Well, if that's the case, then why is Denny still listed as a songwriter on Mull of Kintyre to this day? 
If he's still co-credited, in theory, he should still have been earning the songwriting royalties until the day he died. And then the rest of those earnings will pass on to his estate. So, what did happen? Well, the theory that I find most likely is that Denny's estate had to basically forfeit any income made until that loan was paid off, interest-free. This meant that any future money earned by Denny was going to have to be divided up twice, first by the taxman and then by Paul McCartney slash MPL. Now, we don't know the rest of the details behind Denny's particular financials at this time, but it is safe to say that this new monthly expenditure did not ease an already precarious situation. And for anyone thinking that Denny would surely have plenty enough of the pie left over once the rights reverted back to him, should also realise that the most lucrative years to earn off Mullavkin Tyre would have been in those years after the breakup of Wings. You know, I'm sure Denny got a nice big payout in 78, but after that, I'm not so sure. So, in practice... Denny probably only got a couple of grand a year once the song was half his again, at a maximum. So if Denny wants any cash left for himself at the end of the month, he's now going to have to work harder and faster than he ever has before. However, when you're an artist, when you're a struggling artist, when you feel like you've been cooped up for all these years, to then have to basically start from the bottom and work your way up again is only going to breed further resentment. I'm sure Denny would in some way see that Paul has put him in this situation, even though that probably isn't the case. And again, tensions can only mount. Again, the episode gets a little difficult for me here because this money issue between Paul and Denny is awfully complex. First of all, Denny was basically broke when Paul asked him to join Wings. And there are even rumours that Paul reminded Denny of that fact at least once. But regardless... The power balance issue was always there. No matter how much Denny could have earned, he was still hanging out with a man who did have a lot more money than him and who Denny would have seen as, quote-unquote, having it all. Then, when it comes to like the Band on the Run era, I'm sure Denny imagined himself earning a little bit more. But that never happened. He didn't see the big bucks until the Wings Over the World Tour because, again, touring is how... He makes his money. And again, at the end of the day, even if Paul had given Denny a 0.5 or 1% share of the receipts, he would have been kept happy. He would have been kept quiet. But I don't think Paul ever thought that that was going to happen. And if I could make Paul be 100% honest, make him take off his mask, bring down his defensive barriers and ask him, if every no-name that he allowed to join Wings should have just been happy to be a part of the band, I'm not 100% he'd say no. Now, I get that that's an awful lot of conjecture and speculation, but it's not baseless. I mean, take another quote from Denny here. McCartney was always making excuses for not paying us properly by saying his money was all tied up in the Beatles company, Apple. Finally, I got so sick of it that I blew up and said I was going to leave, so he gave me £30,000. I was kept in the dark all the time about money, just given a check every now and then. I began to hate the whole thing. So that seems pr pretty clear cut, right? But then we get a rebuttal from Paul. Now, I have no idea where this quote comes from, but it, it, it appears in forums and comment sections all the time. So if you know, please 
hit me up at paulmccarneypod at gmail.com. But anyway, when asked about the payment of his bandmates, Paul supposedly said the following. Okay, let's take Danny. I've got receipts in the office for a million pounds paid to him. Now, you tell me any guy in the group who got that for the period we were together. Now, okay, if you think I sound mean after that, I've got to disagree with you. I mean, these people like Denny, they say, he didn't pay us enough. Well, what I think is, yeah, well I did. I know exactly what I paid him. It's a million. And that was worth more than what a million's worth now. Okay, so if that is true, then I'm somewhat forced to bring up all of the constant accusations that get hurled back at Denny. Again, hardly the most spendthrifty person on earth. He did have cars and a flash house and possible addictions and affinities for contraband, that kind of thing. Uh, Again, we don't know for sure, but despite Denny's business acumen, he did still choose to stay in the band, despite the writing being on the wall quite early on as to how things were going to go on. You know, Denny didn't get any shares in the sales two or three albums in, and so... You know, he did choose to stay in the band, and the reason he probably chose to stay in the band, folks, as harsh as this is to say, is because it probably was the best move for him. And the only reason he left the band is because at that time, in his head, in that moment, the money simply wasn't worth it, even though he probably was never going to make that kind of money again as a solo act. Again, sounds a bit harsh to say this on a Denny Lane tribute episode but as we're going to see he didn't get that great post wings career that he was hoping but he did get his freedom and at this point in the story i think that's all he really cares about and if that's the case then more power to him because as we're going to see in this story shortly it's not like he stopped being a creative person he didn't stop making music you know the passion was still there and It takes so much bravery to pursue your passions when you know it isn't going to make you money, like podcasting. And so, hats off to Denny for this move. Yes, it may have broken up one of my favourite bands, one of your favourite bands ever, but it is what it is. Annoyingly, as we come to the end of this segment, folks, I don't have a definitive answer to what happened. I don't think Denny has told us the whole truth. I don't think Paul has told us the whole truth. And it's a shame, really, because this is one of the parts of the McCartney narrative that warrants deep, in-depth research, and yet it simply hasn't been done. And with the passing of Denny, I don't think the truth is likely ever to come out now. I mean, what do you think, everyone? After hearing all of this evidence that I've gathered together, what do you think went down? Was it about the touring? Was it about the money? Was it about the band dynamic? Was it all of the above? Or... Is there some sort of death of Brian Epstein moment that happened earlier in the Wings narrative that we could point towards, you know, a kind of forgotten aspect of this story? Again, if you've got any any theories, hit me up at paulmccartneypod at gmail.com. I am sorry that I didn't provide more of, of a definitive conclusion there, but as I said, one has simply not been provided. Anyway, pressing on to some more bad news, let's talk about Denny's marriage. Yes, previously, as mentioned, there were certainly some strains on Denny and Jojo's wedding bliss, with the two of them hardly being the most uh, faithful of couples to each other. 
Denny was having an affair with one of Jojo's friends. Jojo was having affairs of her own with mounting drug and alcohol problems. And the two were very distant, with Jojo going over to America to look after her ailing father. And then with Denny breaking up from Wings and his own financial security being put at jeopardy, it, it all just ended up with the two of them getting divorced. That's simply it. I really wish that Jojo was more a part of this story in the way that like Linda is with the Paul story, but she really is just an extra in this narrative. Um, it, you know, it's it's a shame that the story doesn't pan out better for the two of them. Of, of course, they had some children together, but it just wasn't meant to be, was it? Anyway, let's get back to the more usual content we have on this show, because as we know, just because Denny left the tug of war sessions doesn't mean that he's not going to appear on any more Paul McCartney product as the majority of the Pipes of Peace album released in 1983 was already recorded by February 1981. Yes, don't get too excited here, everyone. They didn't briefly get back together in 83 or anything. Recording dates and release dates are all very deceptive. But yeah, Wings were not a thing when Pipes of Peace was put out. Wings were not a thing when the bonus kind of finishing things off Pipes of Peace sessions took place. Denny wasn't there for the Michael Jackson stuff. And I am sure that if Paul wanted to simply re-record this album or re-record all the songs that he'd already worked on, I'm sure he would have and wouldn't have asked Denny back for those sessions. But, you know, Paul liked what he'd recorded before, enough at least to put it on an album, and so that did result in Denny actually being on Pipes of Peace, technically. Though clearly people at MPL weren't all that concerned with exactly how to credit Denny on this album, and on the PaulMcCartneyProject.com, which is one of the great resources we have for this podcast, every instrument that Denny could have played has a question mark by it. In fact, he's not formally credited anywhere on the physical copy of the album in the way that the other musicians are. And instead, he is simply the first name in the Many Thanks section. So, basically, Denny could have played acoustic and electric guitars on Keep Undercover, Average Person, and one of my low-key personal favourites, Hey, Hey.
And now, folks, we come to the part of the show that we have seen time and time again on this podcast with anyone else in Paul's life who isn't Paul himself, whereby the moment they leave the inner circle, up to 95% of the detail you were afforded on their movements before is now suddenly gone. And instead, things become a lot more vague and generalised. Yes, Denny was free from both the yoke of MPL as well as biographers. And so, whilst I would love to go on for another couple of hours about what Denny did after Wings with the same level of detail, but it, it just isn't possible. And this episode is already easily four hours long by this point. And so, let's just cap things off and do a brief wrap-up and touch on most of the things Denny kept himself busy with after his prolonged internship at McCartney Land. The first of these projects was as immediate as it was short-lived. In a return to familiar rock band naming tropes for Denny, we saw the formation and disillusion of the not-so-notoriously short-lived The Denny Lane Band that he formed with co-ex-Wings member Steve Holly. And folks, I've looked high and low, I've trawled through every possible Denny Lane source and interview, and all I could find out was the fact that the band was called The Denny Lane Band, the fact that Steve Holly was in it, and the fact that they all broke up shortly after forming. I know I should have just quickly moved on, but we've had such full detailed lineups throughout this episode, and now we have a gap for no real reason. It's just a bit annoying, you know? Anyway, what did the rest of Denny's proper discography look like? Well, folks, you may never have heard of many or indeed any of these albums before, but let me tell you, Denny did not slow down in his older years and, if anything, wrote and released more material per year than he ever did in Wings. After releasing Japanese Tears on Scratch Records, Denny then signed with Polydor in 1981 to begin work on a new album, 1982's Anyone Can Fly. He then went on to record two other solo albums with President Records, Hometown Girls in 1985 and Wings on My Feet in 1987. After that, he recorded an instrumental album that I actually played at the start of this episode called Master Suite, which came out in 88 on Thunderbolt Records. And yes, you have all technically now heard that album in full. You are welcome. His 1989 album, Lonely Road, was again with President Records, before he then returned to Scratch to do a double whammy in 1996 with Wings at the Sound of Denny Lane, a compilation-slash-re-recording album, and Reborn, an album of all originals. Clearly going along with the Beatle and Anthology hype, along with everyone else in the Beatle realm at that time. Now, I know some of you might be out there thinking, hang on, there's definitely more Denny Lane albums than that. I've seen them. Well... To anyone who has ever tried to listen to Mr. Lane on streaming platforms will be well aware that there are a load of extra kind of bonus compilation Denny Lane albums. And they all feature previously released material. They're never new. They always just have like a new title slapped on them. And they do seem to make up a large part of his discography and probably a large part of his revenue stream. Or it's a way that other people have been making money off the Denny Lane name. Uh, hopefully Denny had been getting some money for rehashing that old tat. But yeah, it is a little bit annoying that so much of the Denny Lane kind of discography, especially what is available online for free, is all of this extraneous cash grab stuff. Like you can't get R Lane 
Holly Days, the original Japanese Tears, Reborn, Wings uh, at the Speed of Denny Lane. You can't get that on Spotify, but you can get all of the re-release crap made to get a quick buck. And it's, again, annoying. But this is what you get for being in the obscure part of the Paul McCartney narrative, as we all know. Now, there are some good selections of Denny Lane available on Spotify and Apple Music, etc. But if you are interested, folks, at the end of this four-hour epic to go and listen to some of Denny Lane's solo stuff, I suggest going on YouTube, particularly Chloe Costello's page. Uh, That is the best source to get your solo Denny Lane fix. Also, speaking of Chloe Costello, I know that she'll be bemoaning me for not playing a song from each of those previously aforementioned Denny Lane albums. But again, the episode is too long, and I haven't exactly listened to all of them in detail. Sorry, Denny fans. However, as some form of penance, I'm going to go completely the opposite direction and go full obscure mega fan with a song called Brothers and Sisters. Basically, if you want to take your Denny Lane fandom to the next level, then you can start looking for all of his unreleased stuff because in addition to all of the albums that I've just mentioned there is quite the the glut of unreleased or at least professionally unreleased Denny Lane material and one of these unreleased uh, semi-lost media kind of albums was an album of demos called Mining for Gold that Denny released exclusively through his own website in 2008 Those demos were intended or eventually intended to be included on another unreleased album called Valley of Dreams. I don't know what the details are. It all sounds very complicated. But the point is, most of it is your standard folksy acoustic Denny Lane affair. But the opening song, Brothers and Sisters, well, it's something else. And I absolutely just have to play it for you. I do. So many words that can say what you need All the truth is hidden in the lines 
One of the most significant reasons that Denny is such a, a mainstay within the fandom and has so much respect and charity f- from them is because from the mid to late 80s, he did become a regular face at Beatles conventions and festivals. He would always do a performance, he would always do a question and answer segment, and despite the fact that he'd have to do the same four or five songs and answer the same four or five questions to the same kind of four or five types of Beatle and Wings fans, he never lost that enthusiasm. He was always there, always smiling, uh, always enthusiastic to perform, and, you know... I guess these conventions and the festivals, in a way, were a venue for him to have those frothing, rabid fans that he might not be getting at his other live shows. You know, to the rest of the world, he was just Denny Lane. But to those old school Wings fans, he was Denny fucking Lane. You know what I mean? And I'm sure he appreciated that kind of fan loyalty, you know? I'm not going to play any of the footage or the audio, because A, there's too much of it, but B, it's all stuff that... We've already played before, of course. But again, go to YouTube, check out all of Denny Lane's live appearances. They are always high quality. He's always a consummate performer. Speaking of touring, throughout the 90s, Denny was part of a supergroup, another fucking supergroup. But this time it was one that stayed together for a while, actually. It stayed together longer than Denny Lane was a member, actually. Uh, this band was called the World Class Rockers. And it did have a massively rotating lineup of members. Uh, it is a kind of a an all-star band kind of effort. But its quality of members is actually surprisingly high. You have, including but not limited to, Nick Nicholas and Michael Monarch from Steppenwolf, Bobby Kimball and Fergie Friedrichsen from Toto, Randy Meisner from The Eagles, Ron Wixo from Foreigner, and for one of the lineups. Denny Sywell from Wings as well. And, of course, Denny was a part of this, and the way it was done was everyone would come up on stage and do a couple of their greatest hits and then either leave the stage 
or be part of the backing musicians for whoever was on next. And because Denny's list of known hits was pretty thin, he then, of course, would be cursed to play his, you know, time to hides, go nows and say you don't minds at every gig. And I know this did bother Denny to some degree. If you go back and listen to my recent um, poorly recorded appearance on When There Was Fab, you will know that Denny was basically made to do these songs because at the end of the day, that is what the majority of people were paying to see. And that's, you know, just the songs he had written. I'm sure it was an even sorer spot to have to play songs either co-written or straight up just written by Paul McCartney. But still, it was an avenue for Denny to perform. It was an avenue of financial security for him. And he soldiered on. And he never stopped touring. I mean, records for the 80s and 90s are scattershot at best. But as we move into the late 2000s, the late 2010s, you can just see that it's been constant. Uh, You have the Denny Lane and the Moody Wing Band present the Magnificent Moody's and Band on the Run live, which ran from 2019 to 2020. That had 16 shows. Then the next tour was Band on the Run Live, which had 27 US shows. There was the Denny Lane Song and Stories Tour, which had 16 shows. And then as recently as 2022, we had Denny appearing on that, um, it was 50 years ago today, an all-star tribute to the Beatles, where Denny shared the stage with Todd Rundgren, Badfinger, Jason Sheff, and Christopher Cross. And so, just like our Paul, Denny was still playing his heart out well into his 70s. And I am sure he would have carried on playing had his health not impacted his ability to perform the way it did. In addition to recording albums and performing live, though, Denny also went ahead and wrote himself a musical. Yeah, long before Paul had ambitions to do It's a Wonderful Life... Uh, more than 20 years ago now, Denny Lane wrote Arctic Song, which is an environmentally based musical play that is basically the story of, brace yourselves folks, an alien who comes to Earth posing as a human to help solve the problems of pollution. He meets a Siberian environmentalist and together with various threatened animal species of the Arctic region, they embark on a magical adventure to bring attention to the rest of the planet. All 16 songs slash chapters represent the ethnic music and local, e- e- and local eco-problems for each respective country, e.g. the Brazilian rainforests, Japanese inland sea, the whale population, Siberian tigers, polar bears, etc. If that interests you, again, I'm not going to play any of it now, but the whole thing has been made available on YouTube where Denny performed it in full at Stonehurst College. Um, I don't believe this is when he first played it there, because I think he played it there in 1997, but yeah, there's a whole performance of it a few years later. It all looks a bit more HD. It really is an episode in itself, so I'm not going to get too deep into it now, but it is very interesting indeed. Very, very ambitious, I've got to say. Let's see if Paul can top it with It's a Wonderful Life. But it was not all work, there was some play and even further love in Denny's life. He married Rosha Kazvari or Kazravi in 2003, they later separated and divorced in 2021. And then after that, Denny married Elizabeth Mel or Melly, uh, now Elizabeth Hines. 
and she's been actually handling all of Denny's social media over the past few weeks, and it's been it's been great actually. She's she's doing a fantastic job at making me cry. Oh my god, every every single thing she posts is just so so tear inducing. I should also mention at this point that Denny does have several children who are surviving to this day. We have Heidi and Lane Hines from his first marriage, and then three other children: Damien James, Ainsley Adams, and Lucy Grant. He also has a sister, Doreen, who was a survivor as well, and several grandchildren. Rounding out this session, we'll touch on one of Denny's last great achievements, and that was his induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Now, if I'd have mentioned at the start of the episode that Denny Lane was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame... Now, if at the start of this episode I mentioned that Denny was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, I think it's safe to assume that most of you would have thought that it would have been for his work in Wings. But no you'd be sorely mistaken. For in 2018, the Moody Blues were part of the inductees slash winners from that year. And despite Denny's short tenure within the band, he was still inducted with them. And this is a really bittersweet moment for me because on one hand, it is fantastic that Denny finally gets to be officially a part of the big time, you know, with this induction into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. He gets to have his name immortalised, carved in stone, in lights, in memoriam. The only thing is, shouldn't he get this award, this recognition, this accolade for his work in Wings instead? I mean, he's the co-writer on Mull of Kintyre. He's half of Band on the Run in many ways. He was there from start to finish in what is easily one of McCartney's biggest decades, and yet he's only known for, you know, officially on the books, for a little stint in the Moody Blues. It's very strange. Though, not from Denny's perspective. When asked about this very situation, he said, Wings was not a band, really. It was Paul McCartney and a backing band. That's the truth of the matter. We weren't a band like the Beatles, the Stones, or the Moody Blues, so I wouldn't see Wings as a band that would go into the Hall of Fame, to be honest. All humour aside, of course, we must cover the final days of Denny Lane. We found out in late 2022 that Denny had suffered a very bad bout of COVID-19 and that it had left his lungs in a very weak position indeed. And, of course... This is when we saw the Denny Lane Benefit concert on November 27th, 2023, where all of Denny's friends got together to raise some money to help with his costly medical bills. People like Denny Sywell, Mickey Dolans, Lawrence Juba, Joe Bouchard, Joey Molland, Neil Hamburger, Tim Heidecker, Peter Asher, Paul Schaefer, Jeremy Clyde, Mark Stomer, Albert Lee, Doug Gillard, Puddles Pity Party and Andrew Sandoval all came together to champion Denny, to raise some money, to raise his spirits, to give something back to his fans and just show the world how much we love Denny. Like, it's so great that so many people showed up, so many big names came, you know, to raise some money for our pal Denny. And it was a very touching moment at the time. Sadly, the efforts, I'm not going to say they went that they went to waste, but of course, the efforts didn't win. Unfortunately, Denny Lane died from interstitial lung disease in Naples, Florida on the 5th of December 2023 at the age of 79. 
But that is not the end, everyone. The story does go on. We are only at the time of recording, only a few days away from the 50th anniversary of Band on the Run and the Half-Speed Vinyl Remaster re-release. That's going to go with it, with all these underdubs. And what we are going to see with this re-release is just how fucking important Denny Lane was to Wings, to the Paul McCartney sound of the 1970s. In conclusion, folks, without Denny Lane, there is no Wings. I know Denny would call it the Paul McCartney band, but he was vital in making the Wings sound what it was. Of course, he wrote songs for them. Of course, his harmonies were as serendipitously well-matched to Paul's in the way that Lennon's and Harrison's was. But he was also a firebrand, a jumping-off board, uh, an ideas guy that would help Paul write, that would help Paul create music. He was, in many ways, that writing partner that he yearned for after the breakup of the Beatles. Of course, there were imbalances, but without Denny, there is no Mullican Tire, there is no Get On The Right Thing, there is no Band On The Run as a whole, there is no London Town as a whole, there is no Steve Holly, there is no Lawrence Juba. Like, Denny runs through the very veins of that band through and through and if you take out Denny that magic is gone it is just the solo Paul show also Denny as this bluesy gypsy rocker did give the band a bit of rock and roll legitimacy especially like in the Henry McCullough days as well you know Denny would be there to kind of steer Paul away from his poppy tendencies for every Mary had a little lamb Denny would, you know, steer them towards something a little bit rockier or a little bit heavier to try and centre the band. Also, Denny was a, a, a key player as Paul's lieutenant, being as a vital middleman between him and the other members of the band, especially during, like, creative disputes, that kind of thing. Denny's own songs also really helped define what the wing sound was in terms of, like, breaking up that McCartney sound, like as rare as they are, when we do get a Denny lead vocal or a, you know, a Denny composition, it really does change the whole texture of the album. It recontextualizes the whole album and it, it fits into the McCartney sound oddly well. You really can tell that these two did share those common cultural reference points. Of course, if we are following the official party propaganda as well, one of the most important things Denny did was just be there for Paul, not just as a songwriter, but just as a, as a friend and a loyal friend at that. Denny was there from start to finish. And despite a few spats here and there, a few moments where he may have stomped his feet a little, you know, Denny truly was a loyal disciple of St. Paul and likely put up with McCartney longer than most people ever could. You know, a lot of people can't do a single recording session with Paul, let alone put up with him for 10 years. So, you know what, Denny, just kudos for you for sticking around, making some good music, having a good time and bringing us all joy. And finally, um, this might be only relevant to me, but one of the best things Denny Lane ever did was give losers like me hope. Denny showed the world that even though no one else would ever get to be a Beatle, you could still get pretty darn close. You didn't have to be from Liverpool or even have a similar string of number one hits to still end up in a band with Paul McCartney. All you had to do was be talented, be cool and be fun to hang around with. 
These are all things that are possible for all of us if you just put the time and the effort in. And as cliche as it sounds, Denny is an inspiration to me and I'm sure to many of you out there as well. Again, for two or three, maybe even four points in the 70s, Denny Lane, a man from Birmingham, was in the coolest band in the world. How can I not be inspired by that? And there we are, folks. We have reached the end. We have reached the end of our tribute to Denny Lane, the man himself. Thank you so much for listening, everyone. I know that this episode has taken a while to come out, but that is not without reason. I did want this to be the best, the best possible episode for Denny, and I hope the proof is in the pudding. I did a lot of research for this one, put a lot of effort into it, and I hope you've got something out of it as well. I really do. I hope it was all worth it. Thank you all for listening, folks. I'm Thank you all for listening, folks. I've been your host, Sam Wiles. Um, next week, we should be back on schedule once more. We're going to be doing Run, Devil, Run. I'd actually already recorded like half of the episode for Run, Devil, Run at the time of Denny Lane's death. Though, considering how long this episode took to uh, come out, I probably should have just stuck with that schedule anyway. But yeah, next week, Run, Devil, Run. Uh, part one of three, I'm hoping. But yeah, till then, folks. Peace and love, peace and love. Harry, Harry Krishna, no more autographs. Peace and love, peace and love. And with a heavy heart, one last time, I must ask, play us out, Denny.
It's better time. 